How should we think of micrograms in terms of the amount of spike protein that's produced by the cells? Can you kind of clarify that? Obviously, we don't have a complete understanding of the nature of the way that the vaccine works in terms of producing immune response. Obviously, we don't have a complete understanding of the nature of the way that the vaccine works in terms of producing immune response. Welcome to the Daily Wrap-Up, a concise show dedicated to bringing you the most relevant independent news as we see it from the last 24 hours. Thursday, June 16th, 2022. Thank you for joining me today. I've got a great show planned for you. It's going to be probably a longer one today. To the collective cheer of certain people, definitely going to be a longer show, but a lot of really important stuff to get to, including a popular topic of 5G technology something we've covered quite a bit and been censored for for ridiculous reasons, you know, for covering the, the legitimate situation that bills were passed while other things were happening, but can't point at 5G in any context during certain t- certain dis- discussions. But we're going to talk about 5G today and a document somebody sent me that is it's really in regard to the focal point of today anyway. I'm going to go deeper on it later, the surveillance aspect. And we know how this builds out in regard to the Great Reset and everything else we've talked about. For those that haven't, make sure you check out our previous work. What we're going to talk today specifically about, as they're framing it, the 5G era, America's 5G era. And I added of surveillance because what we're seeing in the documentation is just it's ubiquitous surveillance. That 5G, one of the main things they gain from this is the ability to ubiquitously, basically constant surveillance, more so than we see today, which should be alarming based on, you know, what we've been seeing, what they've been doing with this so far, any technology for that matter. Now, we're also going to talk about COVID-19 to start today. A couple of important ones I want to go through reasonably quickly, but to show you, that's why I played that clip to start there. I'm just still baffled by that. That was the FDA committee meeting yesterday where they, Tim Truth caught on live where he admitted, we don't know. We don't actually know why it causes an immune response, but it does. Therefore, we should use it. We're going to have a clip I'll play early in the show today of Rand Paul and Dr. Fauci, where that is very relevant to what he says today and what he said today at the virtual meeting, which, by the way, a lot of people said, oh, he faked getting sick so he wouldn't have to go to the meeting while he was there. He was on the Zoom recording from home, but he was there. So it's interesting to see that the way that the partisan discussion always goes. But we're going to talk about that today, as well as a really important discussion around the the Russian imperial movement that, you know, we've been discussing around the idea of the vanilla ISIS PSYOP, which I continue to use vanilla ISIS as the kind of easy way for us to encapsulate a really broad, multifaceted, constantly moving topic. It was just originally around the idea of the white supremacist Republicans that were working with some foreign entity to carry out ISIS-style attacks of, of loans. It was very abstract, and it was really clumsy. It was ridiculous then. The idea that a group that's white supremacist would work with somebody who was not white, and then alternatively that ISIS would essentially associate or anybody foreign with a group that's only white supremacist. It didn't make any sense, and it just still doesn't, but it was used. We saw it. It was even labeled against specifically the Republican white supremacist people they were framing that way. But then it got dropped, which is important to see. I think it's because we kind of exposed not just us, but a lot of people how ridiculous it was. But I continue to use it as the focal point. Because that's the agenda that is still playing out, whether or not they've lost control or 
lost the plot on what they're ultimately trying to accomplish or how it's being perceived. But today we're going to see that the Russian imperial movement is being pulled into this conversation, even with how flimsy this is and how we've been calling this the entire time. This is what's going to happen. I think, I think Whitney and I had conversations about that. And quick, quick uh, early note, I'll say it again at the end, Whitney and I are going to be connecting in the next couple of days to do a specific focus on this whole artificial intelligence, sentient, sentient idea, Google and the whole thing. We'll be talking about that. I also had a great interview today with um, Eva Bartlett, and I'm going to be putting that out probably tomorrow. She's lot, she's in Don, in the Donbass region right now. And we just had a live interview from the ground discussing a lot of different things. I'll be playing that soon. But on top of the rest of the conversations, we're going to focus on this idea of the vanilla ISIS conversation and how it's being used. Recent White House releases that are basically saying from another angle why they can restrict your free speech, attack you for saying things that are then used to carry out violence, even though you didn't carry out violence. They say because you said those things, therefore that person did those things, therefore you're a terrorist. Really abstract discussion. Is there some kind of a truth in there? Maybe. The argument that if somebody meant to do that, that maybe there should be some accountability. How do you prove that? How do you prove intent? Unless they said, I meant to do that, right? This beca- this comes down to political choice and saying, well, we think, wink, wink. Well, isn't he wearing a red hat? Come on, guys, don't we know? Right, that's what's happening right now. Very childish. But we're going to end today with a really important conversation that I keep kind of kicking off that I meant to do on other platforms that I still am going to do, by the way, the sort of fundraising conversational other shows. I'll get to those soon. But I included them today because I wanted to make this one big discussion. The 5G surveillance, the targeted individual discussions around that kind of technology, as well as the future of this and where it seems to be going. So make sure you stay tuned to the end, as always, because there's a lot to get to today. But I want to start off with a shout out to so- Sovereign, which I just we just talked about locals the other day. I told you I'm going to be pointing these out. You're all very well familiar with SuperU, but I will go through that one as well as you know we go through some of the others first. Sovereign's a great platform. Ben Swan, the, the creator behind it all. And I just want to give it a shout out for those that don't know we're on this platform. It's a great platform. And there's also ways you can support T-Lab on this platform by donating and so on. And the same idea. So I just want to make sure you shout this. I want to shout this out as well as we did yesterday for locals.com. If you, have, if you haven't checked out our account there, make sure you go and support us. At least follow us on these different platforms. So when they eventually, guaranteed, kick us off the rest of them and maybe start finding a way to stop my pirate accounts, you'll know where to find us. There's just a great video I'll include. Hands off our children, the vaccine injured speak out. This is from the Children's Health Defense account on Sovereign. <clears throat> but so you guys can see, oh, I think I have it right here. Here's my account, Last American Vagabond. We've got 5,000 followers in there. It's not too bad. We already have over 300,000 views just on this platform alone. Think about that. Make sure you support us on the independent platforms that support you and your right to think for yourself. And by the way, I was just speaking with one of the people behind the scenes here, and there's new things coming soon to the platform. So good stuff to look out for. Now, let's start today with the discussion of COVID-19. Somebody just shared this. This is where I saw it first. So thank you for the, the post, Dizzy Retro, discussing from uh, rheumatology, uh, academic, OUP.com, Oxford Academic, discussing another example of something that the vaccine could potentially cause. Just an endless amount of things that we're seeing, the joke we keep making, how many super rare things in a pile become no longer super rare. And we have an endless amount of these. Like it's it's like the end, the the ends of a movie, the credits. That's, I mean, just endless. And and that's almost, I I say that almost jokingly, but the reality is people have made those. I think we played one where just as a a screen, just 
flowing one after the other of showing all the things they've said can happen. Maybe super rare, but they can happen. Okay, well, how many? And it just, it goes on for 15 minutes. We know of the myocarditis, the Bell's palsy, blood clots, and all the rest of the very serious things that are all possible, but super rare. What about all the rest of them we're not talking about? Now, again, this is the point we keep making about how, what, what point did we stop caring about peer-reviewed research? These aren't being retracted. These aren't debunked. So why aren't we talking about them? Why don't we care? Now, this was a little more abstract because it's not 100. This is a more of a, 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 an overview of what could be possible. But there's been a million of these things so far. I shouldn't say million. There's been a lot of them, thousands. I've seen a lot of these reports coming in of people. And, and specifically, I've seen personally hundreds of peer-reviewed studies that have come out and said, this is associated with the vaccine. This is one of them. Risk of, and again, more of an abstract one, but risk of systemic vasculitis following mRNA code vaccination, a pharmacovigilance study. You know, the thing they claimed they were going to do, except they're only doing that for their own purposes and ignoring what you think or what you report or what everybody else sees. This is May 31st, 2022. Oh, that, that this is the actual PDF. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. I think I had it. It was uh, right here. And I just wanted to highlight one main part. Please go through it as always in its entirety. But it says, and, and to, to make this clear, what they ultimately find here, the, the main statement is that they don't, the, that they find a correlation, but they end up making sure you understand that it's in fact not any more of a correlation than we have with the flu injection, <laughs> but we're not supposed to think about that either. So either way, the point is, yes, this is something that can be caused. Therefore, you should have a choice always, even though you should anyway, but it's also there for the flu vaccine. Just make sure you hear that too. But then they go, but these two or three, I think it's four specific things are not only prevalent or possible, but they're more prevalent than in the flu vaccine. That's very relevant. This should be an, a broadly discussed thing on the corporate media everywhere if there was an honest reporting system in the corporate media. Of the 2,499,457 spontaneous reports of mRNA COVID-19 vaccines in Vigibase until 31st of March, 2022, we identified 2,125 or 8.5 per 10,000 reports. That's a lot. Vas uh, of, of vasculitis cases, 61% women, median age 58. So 8.5 per 10,000. Now it goes on to say overall mRNA COVID-19 vaccines were associated with an increased reporting of Betchett syndrome. And I'll show you what each one of these are. You won't be surprised. I didn't know what they were before we looked them up, but you be, won't be surprised to find out what they actually are. They're all different varying relations to, uh, to vasculitis, and it says microscopic polyangitis, livedoid vasculopathy, and uticarial vasculitis. Okay. Pronunciation aside, let's look at what these are. Batchett's disease, also called Batchett's syndrome, is a rare disorder that causes blood vessel inflammation throughout your body. Now, what's interesting is one thing we should point out is that, you know, th that's what this could be. And if it is, that's what they're finding, that this is more than usual. So that's one thing you should be up with. That's, that's alarming, especially when in a gigantic pile of hundreds of other things in the, same in the same risk category. But what if it's not this? What if they're just finding systemic inflammation in your blood vessels, but everywhere else? And it gets called this, maybe because they mean to, or they don't, because it's an intention, or who knows. But the point is, we know for sure, we are seeing massive inflammation from all sorts of things. Systemic inflammation, in fact, caused by the injections. But what else is doing that? That's right. Masks. It's not a hyper, it's not a conspiracy theory. This has been found by numerous peer-reviewed studies. People just don't want to talk about it. 
systemic inflammation. It's just very serious. Now, I'm not saying that's what's causing this. I'm just trying to point to an, a, a perfect storm of issues. And what you'll find is all the rest of them are very similar. Inflammation of the body. <laughs> and you can't miss how interesting and obvious this is. Then it goes on to say mouth sore are things that it causes, which I find interesting. Mouth sores, eye inflammation, skin rashes, lesions, and genital sores, blindness. Now, just overlap there with inflammation, lesions, skin rashes. Sounds kind of similar to things that could also look like well, monkeypox, maybe. Just one of a million things. I can't stop doing that. So far, I've seen five, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, five different things in studies that find COVID-19 injections can cause these, and those things could be misconstrued or misconfused as monkeypox. And actually, I'll show you one next, in fact. Next one. Microscopic polyangitis is a condition that causes small blood vessels to be inflamed. So similar. Just interesting to see that they're all causing inflammation of the body. This one is a, this was livedoid vasculopathy, a chronic, painful, thrombo- Oculus, uh, occlusive vasculopathy that involves the, the, the distal lower extremities and feet. Skin changes, ulcerations. Again, it's interesting overlap. So we continue to have thrombotic events in this case, or thrombooculus occlusive vasculopathy, but that it also causes ulcerations and so on. These are very interesting overlaps to what we're over, overall talking about. The final one was a form of vasculitis characterized by inflamed and reddened patches and wheels all over the skin. So inflammation, weird patches and splotches that I, I just can't, it's interesting they keep seeing this and the overlaps. Yes, they're all generally in a similar category, which is probably why. But nonetheless, the point is that of these, they're finding this, these cases, all these four different things are an increased risk. If you take the COVID injection, add it to the list. Then, to my point, this is from December 2021, exacerbation of, uh, score, uh, of psoriasis following COVID-19, which is a common thing, right? But just so we can be clear, take a look at what that can look like. Could, are we going to pretend that this would not be potentially misconstrued as monkeypox during with what's, what's going on today with the way that the medical field works today? Did you just give them a PCR test? Well, it's a roll of the dice, isn't it? That could be whatever you want it to be. My simple point is to add to the list of things that could be misconstrued as what they want it to be if they choose or if they don't know any better. On top of that, here is a, a as he points out, disturbing post from a doctor, <clears throat> which correlates with everything else that we're talking about. As he points out, food for thought, I've been experiencing, expecting, excuse me, to see a change in disease pattern in boosted individuals. And with this variant, it has come to roost. The unvaccinated have mild flu-like illness. Which, by the way, could be the flu, <laughs> could be a cold. He's not simply, he's not implying that they're all simply COVID-19. He's just saying unvaccinated, who he's treating, have mild flu-like illness. Which I'm sure we're all broadly just assuming is COVID, because literally everything anywhere is COVID right now for people that think like that. But it could be the flu, it could be a lot of other things. But he simply says mild. Most recover. Some have mild reactions post-day eight that are easily controlled. Just he's not talking about vaccines, just people that unvaccinated get sick. And somehow he seems to find a weird correlation around day eight that there must be some odd reaction. They're controlled. No big deal. In his experience, to be clear. Then he says in the vaccinated, however, and this is his contrast. He's a doctor in his practice. This is valid. I've had two boosted patients suddenly go into cardiac arrest without precipitating symptoms, a la SADS, right? But that's what they're all calling this, which is clear to my opinion. It's connected to something on day three. He says, this prompted me to do biomarkers. So this is an assumption. This is not observation. He did tests on the subset and presentation. 
on presentation, usually before day four, and have found many, and you've heard this before, with very elevated CPR, D-dimer, and IL-6 values. Is this the vaccine-induced, inappropriate immune priming coming into play? I mean, I'm not going to say we know for sure. He's not saying he knows for sure. Why isn't anybody asking this question other than people they call conspiracy theorists? He's a doctor. He has valid tests and provable information. People call him crazy. Early change in treatment strategy seems to bring quick clinical recovery and biomarker restoration. Point being, if you took action based on these observations, you might be able to help the people that are suffering from these vaccine problems. But nope, it's all conspiracy theory. It's nothing to do with that. Portugal has a high death rate in a highly vaccinated population with the above variant, which I would argue it's been that way for the whole time, but with the, not the variant, but rather the vaccine-induced problems that we're framing as that. In poorly vaccinated South Africa, not so much. Now, isn't it interesting that South Africa is where Omicron first, or rather secondarily, showed up? Weirdly enough, though, they're pretty low on the vaccine scale, and they're doing well. Or not, not in comparison to other people, let's put it that way. Does that, does that make sense? Wouldn't, wouldn't you imagine that they would be devastated by the biggest pandemic in a century if they were completely unprepared? Except that's not what happened. My observations in comparison to an unvaccinated control group might prove helpful to them. If that's if anybody cared to listen. Now, on the monkeypox point, just to kind of wrap that, tie that general observational thing in there, here's a great article for you to read from Kit Knightley. Monkeypox is following the COVID playbook step by step. Now, that doesn't mean, as I believe Kit would point out as well, that this is guaranteed to happen. My point, like I said before, is could it? Absolutely. And that's the same point being made here. They're, it's following the same progression. Now, it could just be something else. My point, as I was going to say, is that should they choose to, this could be whatever they want it to be based on the same metrics. To be to be quite clear about this, it doesn't even have to be a real thing. This needs to be understood by people. I'm not saying that's what happened. Certainly could be. Should they have wanted to fake this entirely? We've already made clear how that's wildly possible. With the PCR test, with combining flu and pneumonia, as they've called out before, and then add in something that causes problems that look like something else, and then you call it what you want. There's a lot of ways this could be easily misrepresented. Just something to think about. Then on the point of the Bayer's information, I want to make a really important point about something I referenced on a previous show in regard to the UK from 2006 and what they used to say about the reports that we're seeing. This is a really important one. It shows you how ridiculous they are when it comes to just simply choosing to change their narrative whenever they so choose. Now, this shows you 2,170,161 reports of adverse events. Now, they can be small. It could be something that has, you know, headache or whatever. You know, there's a lot of those in there, and there, but there's a lot of reports. Now, the first thing to see is the general amount that we're looking at is unprecedented, whether or not we're talking about small things. Unprecedented. And remember, as we'll show you in a minute, as it even reads right here, that this generally, as, as reported by HHS and Harvard when they did their own study of the VAERS system, that it accounts for only 1% of generally the total. And that's an estimation, but it's been held pretty pretty strongly. By, and even in the UK, that's 10%. Bottom line is, it's more than this. Almost a guarantee based on their own assessments. So here you can read through this if you want. And this is a great website to look at. Here's a, a better view of it for those that want the breakdown. There's COVID vaccine adverse event reports. 28,000 deaths. Just deaths. But it's just in case you want to go through it. But here's why I'm bringing this up today. Here was the link that they used to reference the claim about what they said in 2006. Now, let me read through this article itself. May 2006. 
doctors urge to be more vigilant over drugs' side effects. It's funny how that's the opposite today, isn't it? That they wouldn't say that. But if anybody's speaking up going, man, I just had a problem, and they go, conspiracy theory, you're a fake news, anti-vaxxer, the, the community circles them and screams them down. How are we ever going to pretend that any side effects can squeak through such a control structure? Or even, I mean, the real ones, which there are, as they're admitting, as we know. Yet we watch it. We can all see how this happens. A doctor stands up and says something that's provable by data in his hand. And they go, oh, anti-vaxxer, unscientific. The community shouts him down. Not doctors, but people on Twitter that you can't, average people. And which is completely supported by the politics, of course. So what happened? What changed? And we watched the trend, the, 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 transition, I guess, from the old WHO documents we showed you where they're calling this stuff out, saying that we're, we're using pandemics of fear to push vaccines. That was what the WHO said in 2011, but everything shifted somewhere. Now, I don't know for sure. I can't say obviously what point it was, but we watched it and we can see it now where those same people or rather the same out in institutions are on a completely different path. In fact, going forward aggressively in the direction of what they called out back then as the wrong way to go. How does that make sense to anybody? Here's a great example of that for the podcast. The title is Doctors Urge to Be More Vigilant Over Drug Side Effects. 5,000 die every year as a result of adverse reactions. What the secondary headline says. You wouldn't hear that from anybody today. At least 250,000 people end up in the hospital every year, they say, in 2006, because of damaging side effects of the medicines they're taking. And about 5,000 die, according to the British Medical Association. Now, the point is that's not arguably with how many they claim they're helping, that's not very much. But it matters, right? As they would tell you, every every death matters. One person. So based on the logic of COVID or whatever else they're framing it as today, this should have been absolutely tackled until it went down to zero because we can't allow one person. It's unrealistic, obviously. Just trying to always highlight their ridiculous contradiction of logic and when they want to do something. But it says only, and of course, in this case today, I'm talking about the UK government, but it would be US or wherever you're framing it, only an estimated 10%, and this is UK versus 1% in the US, of adverse drug reactions are currently reported through the yellow card system or scheme. I think that's a perfect word for it. And it says, uh, and this is being cited by the MHRA, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Authority. It says, quote, unfortunately, too many health professionals are confused about reporting procedures. Yeah, exactly. Maybe because you make it confusing. Doctors must make sure they report any suspected adverse drug reactions suspected. That's not even, they're not, they're not reporting absolutes today. And at the same time, increase awareness among uh, their patients about the reporting process, neither of which is happening. Now, people are going to simply point at that statement and say that I'm misrepresenting. Yes, they're reporting every single thing they know. We've proven that's not true. Even if it's just one out of everything that's ever happened, that still is a case of that's not being true. It's happening. It's more than that, though. We've seen reports from absolute average people reporting what's happened. People like Matt Degare, where they get this actually have a, a life a debilitating process where they're in a wheelchair the rest of their life, and they still report it as a stomachache. Right? These are verifiable points in this discussion. So it can't be something as simple as to say you're misrepresenting it, you conspiracy theorist. But they'll do that anyway. A study published in 2004 found 6.5 percent of people admitted to hospital had suffered an adverse reaction from a drug. 6.5% of people, that's a lot. And in, and in 80% of those, the drug was the direct cause of the admission. On average, the patient spent eight days in hospital. More than 2% of those admitted in this way died. 
Now, I'm just including these information because this isn't necessarily relevant to the point I'm making. But I just think it's interesting that these things don't get stated today. Why aren't we referencing that? If that's simply a general idea that 6.5% of people have adverse events, then nothing should ever be forced ever. If I have a 6.5% chance of getting sick and then an 80% or rather, and then 2% of that dying, it means you have a chance of dying from anything they're giving you, which by the way, we already know. And that should mean that you have a choice no matter what. You don't get to go well because what we say means that more people will be generally helped if we all do it, even though you may die. You don't get to do that. That means your your personal bodily autonomy and safety and choices don't matter when it comes to the collective. And that's what they're pushing in in every possible way today. Now, there's an argument to be made there about whether you should do that. But it should always be your choice. Always. Because it's your life, your body. Yeah, you're, my body, my choice, right? It only matters when they want it to. The research revealed that the damaging side effects of drugs were responsible for 4% of hospital bed capacity and the cost of the NIH. $466 million a year. It's a lot. The MHRA urged healthcare professionals to use the yellow card scheme. Quote, there is no, and this is the important part we referenced. This is 2006. This is the MHRA saying exactly what you need to understand about the Bayer system. That's why I showed you that first. There is no need, she says, to prove that the medicine caused the adverse reaction. Just the suspicion is good enough, says June Rain of the agency. So how does it not apply today? Because that argument is, well, we don't know for sure. Well, that's exactly the point. We don't know for sure. So we should pause it until we find out. That used to be the logic. It was the logic to stop swine flu injections. It was the logic to stop numerous things throughout just in the last so many years. Somehow, though, it completely turned on its ear, along with, you know, altering definitions of vaccine and herd immunity and and fully vaccinated and whatever else they want to change, gain of function. Everything's flip-flopping around to make the scene look the way they want it to. That still is the case because they still point at these when they want to. All these are safety signals. That's the point. We don't know for sure. We can all admit that. People could be lying. I guarantee some are. People could be confused about what happened, associating with something that didn't happen. But the bottom line is if it's 1% of the total, and we know that the only thing we need, as they're supposed to be caring about, is these safety signals, which means we don't prove them. We just see the what's coming in. Now, yes, you could argue, and it's a fair argument, this is one of the most politicized discussions in history still doesn't change the fact that this could be true. You understand how crazy that is, right? This this could be the reality. They know that because they keep saying we don't know for sure. It's unverified. So the simple idea that 30,000 people could have died from this is, is not enough, that we keep going until we figure it out, that's the opposite of scientific investigation. That is the opposite of being scientifically sound. That is absolute conjecture, pushing forward what they want based on what they told you is the reality, as we still don't know the long-term safety, as we still don't know um, many other things that, like the contrast with other vaccines, contrast with the drug administration. We just don't know, or rather they know and don't care to show you. But in any case, this matters. The number of reports received each year by the MHRA has remained fairly consistent, constant around 20,000 a year since the mid-1980s. Well, yeah, that was completely shattered right along 2020, 2020 and forward. Various reasons from having too much to do, not having a supply of yellow cards to fill in, and lethargy have been put forward, blah, blah, blah. So 20,000 a year, they're saying. You realize that there's over that alone and just death reports just on COVID-19 alone. Because the point is, guys, that what they're talking about is the entire system yellow card system for every vaccine that's ever been given, that's currently being given to every child and every kid and everything, constant, right? 20,000 a year, all said and done. 
just with COVID-19. I mean, this is the point here, right there. Just COVID. Now we're talking about theirs, to be clear. Not the yellow card scheme. I'm using theirs so it associates with the U.S. audience in this case, but it's the same point. Over 2 million reports. And that's not enough? This is this is a criminal act. Now, and, and by the way, to bring it to the U.K., which is why I included this one next, this is the yellow card system. Right? So if they got 20000 a year, on average, for decades straight, you know, on average 20000 Yet here, they have 1,102,228 yellow card reports of varying degrees of headaches versus death, right? There's been 1,517 deaths, but over a million yellow cards just on COVID-19, one vaccine, or rather, I should say specifically a few of them, but one concept. I don't know how that's not the most outrageous thing in the world, why we're not burning things down. I'm not saying, I mean, theoretical, hypothetical. Never calling for violence. My point is I can't believe we can see such an obvious contrast where they tell you all you need is the hypothetical. All you need is the possible to shut it all down. 20,000 contrasted with over a million in one thing. 20,000 a year for every vaccine. I just can't get past how crazy that is. Okay, here is their weekly, the, the weekly summary of the yellow card reporting. The first thing they point out is at the, same, at the time of the report, there's been over one... 178,448 people across the UK that have died from COVID? That we know, that we tested, we proved? No, no, that we they died within 28 days of a test. Okay, wait a minute. Isn't that exactly the, in reverse what we're pointing at? Are, are, so you're willing to assume it could be that based on a test in 28 days. Remember, remember this point where they say, well, they could have died in a car accident, but if they had a positive test and then they went out and died in a car accident, we're going to go down with COVID-19. Okay, so if we're willing to assume into this risk, why wouldn't we assume into that risk? Inconsistent logic. That's so obvious to me. So we love to type up the number of deaths around COVID to drive in restrictions, but we'll look at millions of reports and go, ah, we don't know. We don't know. So therefore, nothing will happen. Criminal activity. Then you can look through this whole discussion and look at and way down in the report, of course, up to including 25th of May, 2022, the MR, MHRA received and analyzed 171,109 yellow cards from people who have received the COVID-19 Pfizer injection. Just Pfizer alone, 170,000. So if they get 20,000 a year through every single vaccine on average, and, and then now suddenly COVID comes in and just the Pfizer injection alone has over 170,000. I mean, this this should bother everybody. These reports include a total of four hundred and and these are well four hundred ninety two thousand six hundred fifty seven suspected reactions. The idea being that there's multiple on some of them. That's why it's uh, it just makes me it makes makes me upset even just thinking about the fact this is being gaslit. Up to and including May twenty fifth, twenty twenty two, they received and analyzed a total of two hundred forty five thousand UK reports of suspected adverse events to the COVID of, of AstraZeneca. So add all these together. We're not, we're doing individual injections. So we're talking over a million. Or I should take that back. Uh, one, you know, getting close to 500,000 or, you know, 400 so. But the point then is just AstraZeneca. And you, I'll, I'm going to skip past this for the most part. The point is made that you can read through these and realize that individual injections, Moderna, almost 40,000 reports. Also continuing to show you that Pfizer is the one that we should be most concerned about, even though 245,000 is more. I think the reports we're getting from Pfizer are more ubiquitous, like around the world. We continue to see them, the reports being similar. Table four, 
of suspected adverse event reports in the UK up to including May 25th. It just gives you an easy breakdown to look at. That's a lot. And I think there's only one or a couple more points in here. Oh, and this just gets into specifics. Transverse myelitis. They've had 125 reports. And some some people, which ultimately end oh, some of these people end up dying. Here's the one yellow card reports. They have 443 reports of major thrombo thrombo thromboembolic events, blood clots. 443 just from this one's AstraZeneca. And it goes through each one of them. Again, you guys get the point. I mean, this is outrageous. And what because they choose not to investigate these things that it doesn't matter. Overall, as always, again, the overarching point. You know this can happen. They've admitted they can as they dismiss every single person that reports it. But you should have a choice. Doesn't matter if it's one in a billion. You should have a choice to avoid the possible risk of being hurt with these <laughs> this waterfall of possible things that could hurt you. Then, to include it, the new report came out today from New South Wales. You'll be really upset to see the contrast. This was the one from last week. Oh, wait, no, this is the new one. Here's the one from last week. Remember this? So this is New South Wales. One of the only places we can see right now that is still giving you the breakdown between doses. They list here, no dose. And this is the, this one is ICU. Or this one, first one's hospital, second one's ICU, last one's death. So they reported zero hospital, zero ICU, zero in this week with people that had no doses at all, which is not supposed to make sense at all. They should be dropping like flies, according to these people, if they're not injected, right? Not happening. This is consistent week to week to week. But they say 19 deaths. Now, remember, that means people that just die after being told they're sick or so on. There's a lot of ways this gets manipulated. Or, by the way, people that get one shot and then die within 21 days. That still gets bumped down to unvaccinated. We know that. They've proven that. We've shown you on the show. But two doses. 93 hospitalizations, two ICU, 11 deaths, three doses, 184 hospitalizations, 20 ICU, 46 death. And then as four and forward continues to populate, we'll see that increase. Just like we proved to you in Scotland as the same thing happened, and then they censored everything and stopped showing you. But let's jump to today, the new week. So this is what it was last week. Here's what it is today. Look at that. No dose, one hospitalization, zero ICU, same thing, but now it's 12 deaths, but you'll notice an increase. In regard to three doses, now it's 42 deaths, 180 hospital visits, all of it aggressively slanted in people that have injections. Now, yes, it's always a fair point to acknowledge that there's more people vaccinated in the population than than not. But it's not that strong in Australia, to be honest. But the point is, at the end of the day, that a lot there's varying situations, one dose, two dose, three dose, fully vaccinated, up to date. And they have people that have injections in their body are suffering far worse than people that don't. The data's there. They just keep sidestepping the conversation and acting like because we know things that we have, they don't know and can't prove, which is a safe and effective, safe and effective. Their own data backs up that that's not true. And then finally, I'm going to play this clip for you, and then we will step over into the Israeli point, which is not going to take that long. I just want to make sure we see this. That's why I wanted to be first in the title today, which is the fact that the United Nations literally just called out Israel as the focal point of the problem, which is really not something new if you're paying attention. But the fact that it's being so clearly stated is an interesting shift. Things are changing, as Robert's been telling you. But let's watch this clip first to finish off the COVID discussion, because this is pretty powerful, as many of these have been. Now, now I'm not going to say that Ron Rand Paul doesn't have his political agendas, but he like I'm, I'll stop it a couple times to make a point in regard to like why he doesn't po- point out the much more prominent, much more current, much more valid peer-reviewed studies in regard to points he makes in here. Now, maybe he doesn't know they're there. I'm not going to assume. 
But nonetheless, what he calls out here is very important. And, I, you know, Dr. Fauci gets visibly, you know, up unsettled because it's he's being called out. And all, all he tends to do is try to sidestep the conversations. And you'll see for yourself that just because he's a Republican asking Fauci things doesn't mean you should ignore what's being said. That's just ignorance. That's politically engineered ignorance. Dr. Fauci, the government recommends uh, everybody take a booster over age five. Are you aware of any studies that show reduction in hospitalization or death for children who take a booster? Right now, there's not enough data that has been accumulated, Senator Paul, to indicate that that's the case. The I believe that the recommendation that was made was based on the assumption that if you look at the morbidity and mortality of children within each of the age groups, you know, zero so, to five, five to eleven. Right. So, so let's. Did he really just say the assumption? Like, didn't we just show you this? How in the world are we pretending like the assumption is, is, is an acceptable answer? I don't care if you're a scientist, an expert or not. You literally just said, so we're assuming that it would be for, 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 ba- for children that have a very, very, very almost impossibly low, almost non-existent risk of even di- getting sick, let alone dying from COVID-19, if that's even something we're dealing with. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Like the clip I played in the beginning. Well, we don't really know how it actually creates the antibody. I, it's, this is staggering to me. Right now, there's not enough data that has been accumulated, Senator Paul, to indicate that that's the case. The I believe that the recommendation that was made was based on the assumption that if you look at the morbidity and mortality of children within each of the age groups which is basically non-existent and he'll point this out next you know zero to five five to eleven so so let's so there there are no studies and americans should all know this there are no studies on children showing a reduction in hospitalization or death with taking a booster so yeah this is following the science Right. So I can tell you right now the logic here, which is that because we know COVID is so dangerous, because we know that everybody's in so much risk that it's worth taking this assumption. See, that's the emergency authorization ploy. That's why the, the idea that they pretend like that makes sense and it's the same as, as, as approval. It's not. You're, the, the argument being that you're allowed to in this concept. I don't know why loud is the wrong word to use. The, the argument that you could say, well, because of the unknown, therefore we should take a risk right here. It's just illogical. That's the point. That, that's the joking point I've been making from the beginning. We're going to do things that are unsafe for your safety because fill in the blank narrative or logic or explanation. It's crazy. There are no studies. We do not know. Mind boggling. The only studies that were permitted, the only studies that were presented were antibody studies. So they say if we get- sorry, I keep stopping. And yes, we just talked about this. The idea of the antibodies being the only focal point. Remember that just because we show a response, therefore, it's something you should take. And that's the argument of what the guy said in the beginning clip. We don't even know why that happens, but if we're seeing a response. So this is the argument about whether this is antibodies to something that's not currently in existence, whether you're, ha- you're creating antibodies to some genetic code from a computer screen that was pumped out in the beginning, and whether that even if it was valid then, whether it's still valid now. Like, it's just these are obvious points that an average child could understand that doesn't make sense. I'll try to let it stop again. Give you a booster, you make antibodies. Now, a lot of scientists would question whether or not that's proof of efficacy of a vaccine. If I give you 10, or if I give a patient 10 mRNA vaccines and they make protein each time or they make antibody each time, is that proof that we should give 10 boosters, Dr. Fauci? 
Uh, no, that, I think that is somewhat of an absurd exaggeration. Senator well, that Cole. is the proof that you use. Your committees use that. That's the only proof you have to tell children to take a booster is that they make antibodies. So it's not right. an there absurdity. Are, You're already no. at like five boosters for people. You've had, you know, two or three boosters. It's like, where is the proof? Now, I think there is yeah. probably some indication for older folks that have some risk factors. For younger folks, there's not. But here's the other yeah. thing. There are some risk factors for, for the vaccine. And I take issue with that, too. Guys, damn it, it frustrates me that we can't acknowledge that the elderly population was focused on, and we know that that happened in the beginning. And that's why it was an overwhelming percentage of people in nursing homes and hospitals, on top of the fact that their own study, their own documentation says they don't know if it's safe for frail people with multiple comorbidities. I don't know what that points to other than elderly people. You know what I mean? Like, so it's just like, even that caveat there, well, for some people, like, he's just, I, I would argue if he, he's either doing that because he knows that he, otherwise they're going to make a big deal about it. He has to give them something, throw them a bone, but it's not accurate. The data does not back that up. I don't care if they keep saying on the corporate media that it's, it's infuriating to me because those people will then be hurt too, based on what he just said. Now I'm not saying he did it on purpose, but these are the frustrating points for me. Older folks that have some risk factors for younger folks, there's not, but here's the other yeah. thing. There are some risk factors for, for the vaccine. So the risk of myocarditis with a second dose for adolescent boys, 12 to 24, is about 80 in a million. I don't this agree with that. from the CDC and from the Israeli study. Okay, that was my point when I was saying earlier. There was multiple studies, even new ones that recently came out, peer-reviewed, that absolutely blow that out of the water. The risk of myocarditis is so much greater than they're letting people know, than, than even Rand Paul is discussing here. Now, does he not know about those other peer-reviewed studies? I don't know. But that frustrates me. Nonetheless, the point is still important that, yes, there's risk. Now, no matter how big or small, you should have a choice. But we got to be honest about this stuff. It's also in the VAERS study, remarkably similar for boys, much higher from boys than girls and much higher than the background. The background's about two per million. Mm. So there is risk and there are risks. And you're telling everybody in America just blindly go out there because we made antibodies. So it is not an absurd corollary to say if you have 10 i agree in fact you probably make antibodies if you get 100 boosters All right. well, see, and that's the point though you make antibody your body will make a response to whatever garbage is being dumped into it for the most part it could be a terrible response you could create autoimmunity you could create immunodeficiency right depending on what what's happening that's the idea though is there you're, you're producing antibodies for something that's not necessary therefore you're creating a problem it's pretty simple as fauci's pointed out himself as plenty of doctors have acknowledged it's amazing that that's not a focal point of the conversation. Like they're admitting we're at a different stage right now, Omicron and variants and blah, blah, blah. And yet this is still based on what they claim is the original isolate that apparently wasn't isolated before they got it somehow, magic, but that in CDC admitted that in China, but that there's a genetic code that was sent to them and, and used. So it can't be what's currently in circulation. That's literally impossible. They argue, they at least they haven't told us they've changed it. If they did, that's a big deal. They're not admitting it. But why isn't that talked about? Isn't that an obvious contradiction? Like, that's basic reality. You're giving people something that creates antibodies for something that's currently not there. There's only a few people that have been harping on that, me, myself being one of them. It's huge. Nobody cares in the, you know, the corporate media. Right. That's not science. That's conjecture. And we have an absurd 
corollary to say if you have 10. In fact, you probably make antibodies if you get 100 boosters, all right? That's not science. That's conjecture, and we should not be making public policy on it. So, Senator Paul, if I might respond to that, uh, we just heard in his opening statement uh, Ranking Member Burr talk about his staff who went to Israel. And if you look at the data from Israel, the boosts, both the third shot boost and the fourth shot boost, was associated with a clear-cut clinical effect, mostly in elderly people, but also as they gathered more data, even in people in the 40s and the 50s. So there is clinical data. But, but not in children. Right. Well, uh, well see, again, here's the thing is, you're not willing to be honest with the American people. So, for example, 75% of kids have had the disease. Why is the CDC not including this in the data? You can ask the question. You can do laboratory tests to find out who's had it and who hasn't had the disease. What is the incidence of hospitalization and death for children who have been infected with COVID subsequently going to the hospital or dying? What, what, are the, what is the possibility if your kid has had COVID, which is 75% of the country's had COVID, what is the chance that my child's going to the hospital or dying? Now, before he answers that, it's very clear that he's talking about kids that have previously got whatever we're talking about and have some form of immunity, right? Obviously, they're afraid of that question because they've always pretended there's no such thing as natural immunity during COVID-19, which is just one of the most obvious red flags in this whole process. But on top of that, that remember, we've, saw, we've seen numerous peer-reviewed studies that have come out and said that people have a form of immunity, antibody B, T-cell, and memory B, before this ever started because of SARS, because of common cold. And then we know that the kids in general are wildly unaffected. So it's probably more likely that most all of them have had some experience with what we're talking about. But what he's talking about is provable evidence of that. And yet we're, we're talking about creating a situation where they're forced coerced for school and other things to take an injection. And then he cites something in his response that is provably the opposite of what the peer-reviewed science has found. That if you have gotten an infection and then you get an injection afterward, that that's the right thing to do. In fact, there's been corporate mainstream articles that have said that's the wrong thing to do because of the peer-reviewed science that argues that you'll create a situation that drives toward antibody-dependent enhancement. But, you know, Mr. Fauci knows all, right? It's not like, you know, I'm not a doctor or scientist. It's not like I can just look at peer-reviewed science and recognize what the, the information is pointing at, right? It's almost, they want to pretend like we just don't understand. He's willfully ignoring the studies that say those things. He's not saying they just don't understand them, that that's not what they mean. He's just challenging them. If you look at the number of deaths in pediatrics, Senator, you can see that there are more deaths of in people who have had it. Of people who have had the disease. Uh, Senator, we also know from other studies that the optimal degree of protection when you get infection is to get vaccinated after infection. And in fact, showing reinfection in the era of Omicron and the sublineages, that vaccination... But you can't follows. answer the question I asked. The question right. I ask is how many kids are dying and how many kids are going to the hospital who've already had COVID? You see, there's the underlying argument. That's the key point I keep making. Is that for Fauci and whoever else on that side, the argument is, well, we know it's super dangerous. Therefore, we should make sure they get it. The well, no, that's his point, though. He's asking pointedly, how many have actually been hurt? And see, they know that there's basically nothing there. They've even gotten called out for the hospitalization argument where they say there's been 500 kids hospitalized, which, by the way, if this entire thing is only 500 kids hospitalized, that's basically non-existent. But even then, they were called out by Newsweek and said more than 50% of those weren't even COVID-19. They got caught lying twice in that regard. 
So if there is no risk based on the data of what's actually happening to them, that's where they dive into the whole long COVID arguments, unknowns. But nonetheless, the point is that they simply go because there's risk. Therefore, these kids should do it broadly. Everything for, I agree with everything Rand Paul is saying here. It's absolutely asinine to argue that this makes sense for them when the risk is not there. And they know that they just they're trying to manipulate parents. The answer may be zero, but you're not even giving us the data because you have so much wanted to protect everybody from all the data because we're not smart enough to look at the data. When you release data earlier, when the CDC released the data, they left out the category of 18 to 49. This is important. Whether or not there was a health benefit for, for adults 18 to 49, why was it left out? When critics finally complained, it was finally included because there was no health benefit from taking a booster between the 18 to 49 and the CDC study. Another question. Think about that. No benefit. Like, so ask yourself why, if that's the case, was it an accident they didn't include it? Obviously not. They chose to remove the gigantic portion of 18 to 49. Most of, I mean, I don't know if that's actually most of America or not, but it's obviously a huge portion of America. So we didn't see that there's no reason they should get it. There is no benefit. In fact, we also know if there is no benefit with all the super rare possibilities that there's a increased risk with no benefit. Therefore, 18 to 49 should not be getting boosters. But they didn't tell you that. In fact, they pressured them to do it. They forced them to do it. They acknowledge. I mean, it's, think about how criminal that is. A choice to hide that from you so you would do something you didn't need because they wanted you to. Question for you. The NIH continues to refuse to voluntarily divulge the names of scientists who receive royalties and from which companies. Over the period of time from 2010 to 2016, 27,000 royalty payments were paid to 1,800 NIH employees. We know that not because you told us, but because we forced you to tell us through the Freedom of Information Act. Does that matter? Over $193 million was given to these 18 employee, 1,800 employees. Can you tell me that you have not received a royalty from any entity that you ever oversaw the distribution of money in research grants? Now, my point here, and I'm going to skip past this last part because it's just this. The point is that there are obvious influence. There is obvious influence there. If somebody is getting a, a potential monetary in incentive to drive in a certain direction, you have to acknowledge it's a conflict of interest. And this, by the way, is how, from a larger scale, they influence the direction of scientific research. Doctors and scientists have made this clear over the years, becoming an unpopular opinion to express because you get called a conspiracy theorist. The point is he goes on to call out Fauci directly and say for you, and Fauci points out how he's got one thing for monoclonal antibody discussions, and, and that's all, and it goes back and forth. I mean, I'll play, let me play it a little bit more. Um, well, first of all, let's talk about... Royalty. That's the question. No, that's the question. Have you oh, ever no. overseen, have you ever received a royalty playing. payment from a company that you later oversaw money going to that company? Yes. Is the you answer. know, I don't know as a fact, but I doubt it. Well, well here's the thing do. is, why don't you let us know? Why don't you reveal you. how much you've gotten and from what? Hey, just make note that Fauci just said I didn't know and then suddenly discovers one. The NIH okay, refuses. Set, set Look, we ask them. We ask them, the NIH, we ask them whether or not who got it and how much. They refuse right. to tell us. They sent it redacted. Here's what I want to know. It's not just about you. Everybody on the vaccine committee, have any of them ever received money from the people who make vaccines? Right. Can you tell me uh, that? 
Can you tell me if anybody on the vaccine approval committees ever received any money from people who make the vaccines? Soundbite number one. Are you going to let me? Right. You totally gave him that, Paul. You gave him that. Like you, you, you know, that was a little bit of a show. You answered that. You made. You made the question right when you did. You gave Fauci the opportunity to call you out for doing that. Like that was, you know, I don't think it was intentional. I think it was just a bad form. Like you, you had him there. You had him in the corner, and you gave him the ability to make it look like you're trying to grandstand. That was the way I look at that. But here's his answer a question. Okay, so let me give you some information. First of all. According to the regulations, people who receive royal the Bob the uh, the are basically saying they're not required to, to to tell you them. Like the point is that just because there's a law that says you're not supposed to doesn't mean it's not that it's not an obvious problem that you that you aren't. But let me get to the point here. Fifteen to two thousand twenty, I the only royalties I have was my lab and I made a monoclonal. Didn't he just say he doesn't know? weird how suddenly he found one anybody for use in vitro reagent that had nothing to do with patients and during that period of time my royalties range from 21 dollars a year to 7700 dollars a year and the average per year was 191 dollars and 46 cents it's all redacted. It's all redacted, and you can't get any information on the eighteen hundred scientists. You're, you're okay, so his point is that it, we don't know for sure, right? It's redacted, so we'll guess we'll just take your word for it. Bottom line is, it matters, and we know it matters. And the fact that they're so aggressively trying to not show people when it's asked, it, it says something. But overall, the main point here is that there is action being taken that is not backed up by scientific research. It's assumption by by the disease experts that we, that we saw the WHO call this out and say that this is what happened in the past. Disease experts will rise up and take advantage of these situations exactly like this. WHO, HHS, BMJ, they all called it out. I've shown you those documents many times. And we're watching it happen again today. No studies done, but we're going to force it on kids. Even though we, don't, we won't acknowledge how, what risk they're actually in. It's, it's, it's obscene. Now, to think about this in a larger context of, you know, lying about a situation, think about how long we've watched what's been going on with Palestine and how long this has been misrepresented. Remember the, remember the days when there was no Palestine? One of the days when, when literally everybody there was a terrorist? These are these childish level arguments that plenty of partisan people still stupidly make. I mean, it's just incredible to me that that continues. I mean, I haven't played this in a long time, but why not? There's a perfect opportunity to play it. Because, you know, here's a founding member of of Israel openly telling you that she was a Palestinian and that it was real. When were Palestinians born? What was all what was all this area before the First World War? When Britain got the mandate over Palestine, what was Palestine then? Palestine was then the area between the Mediterranean and the Iraqian border. You say there's no such thing as East a and West Bank. No, East and West Bank was Palestine. I'm a Palestinian. Now, the point is, guys, that clip's been played. And that's gold in my air. That is a founding member and one of the earliest prime ministers of Israel. And it's just so it's just so ridiculous. We can get to a point where it's so easy to prove yet because of propaganda and repetitive statements from people like Netanyahu and other prime ministers in the U.S. government that we just gets drilled into people that want to have a political agenda that there is no such thing. It never existed, you crazy conspiracy theorist. Well, we're seeing that shift back now, right? Because we're watching this happen. Don't forget that Beth Selim, Amnesty International, 
Human Rights Watch have all openly now acknowledged that Israel is an apartheid state. They're openly calling it exactly that. Here's Amnesty. I'll just pull up one of them so you can see them. Israel's apartheid against Palestinians, a cruel system of domination and crime against humanity. That's February 1st, 2022. It's amazing that that's not getting focused on, right? We care about human rights and all the different stuff, except when Israel does it, though, because we're disgusting hypocrites. Here is June 7th, 2022. Commission of Inquiry on the Occupied Palestinian Territory, occupied, including East Jerusalem and Israel, issues first report, right? Because they're all occupied territory. Let's not forget that. The entirety of what Israel is, it's occupied territory of Palestine. That's the reality. It's amazing how we can't have these conversations, right? It's weird. It's almost like there's politics controlling what we're doing. The continued occupation of Israel of the up by Israel of Palestinian territory and discrimination against Palestinians are the key root causes of the recurrent tensions. Now, it doesn't mean they don't point out things that Palestinians do. I'll get to that. But just hear what they're saying there. That's an incredibly powerful statement, even though nothing will probably happen. In fact, it'll probably get much worse because the U.S. won't let anything change. The U.S. government. And the Israeli government is clearly showing their showing their hand right now and just pushing forward because they're in a very dangerous position. They're losing control. But as history has shown, the UN will do say things and nothing ultimately happens, but it's still important nonetheless. The key root causes of the tensions, the instability, and the protraction of conflict in the region, not because they're firing rockets, but because of Israel's original illegal occupation and continual suppression of their rights. According to the first report by the United Nations Independent International Commission of Inquiry on the occupied Palestinian territories, including Jerusalem, Israel issued today. The commission also, no, that, said, that, that, that sounded wrong, including East Jerusalem and Israel, this report was issued today. The commission also noted that impunity is feeding increased resentment among the Palestinian people. That's very, exa- that's exactly the point. They're acting with impunity. Israel's government can do whatever it wants, whenever it wants. And the international community, as Robert just reported, is a paper tiger. They're doing nothing about it. In fact, they're ignoring it in most cases. They, I mean, they, they, they literally just bombed the international airport of Damascus. Both civilian and international are the other alternative to that, the military runways. They routinely bomb Iraq. They routinely bomb Syria. There's no legal justification for that, whether or not you say Israel's present, or excuse me, Iran's present. That's not a legal justification. That's a political justification. That's still a war crime. The commission also noted that impunity is feeding the increased resentment. So the Palestinian people see that and it drives action that they then take. And you can call those actions unjust. But the point is it always goes back to the Geneva Conventions and the argument of armed resistance. They have a right as an occupied territory to rebellion, armed rebellion. It identified forced displacement, threats of forced displacement, demolitions, settlement construction, and expansion, settler settler violence, and the blockade of Gaza as contributing factors to recurring cycles of violence. How interesting and obvious is that? How many times have we yelled about this and called anti-Semitic? The point is obvious. Now, of course, they called the entire UN anti-Semitic. They'd call the universe anti-Semitic if it went that far. Bottom line is, they are making this continue to happen. Quote, the findings and recommendations relevant to the underlying root causes were overwhelmingly directed towards Israel, which we have taken as an indicator of the asymmetrical nature of the conflict and the reality of one state occupying the other, according to the chair of the commission. The asymmetrical nature. That's Israel and what it's doing to Palestine. That's how they're talking about this. Because that's the predominant point here. 
But to be clear, they do call out parts of what the Palestinians have done in response. It says, we also found that these recommendations have overwhelmingly not been implemented. Basically, the point is, that's what I was just saying, that the United Nations will say they should do this and this is a crime and nothing happens. And then, of course, there's no repercussions for it. The United States gaslights for what's happening. The UK gaslights France and everybody else that's on that side gaslights for what's happening and they cover it up. There's no accountability. Their recommendations have no standing and they have no influence, which, by the way, it should be. There's no international body that should be able to force this. But as a collective community, as the international community, it's obvious that the powerful don't care about what they're doing. They haven't implemented these, including calls to ensure accountability for Israel's violations of international humanitarian and human rights law. Exactly what they pretend is they're standing for what they do everywhere else, which makes them disgusting hypocrites. And the indiscriminate firing of rockets by the Palestinian armed groups into Israel. Right? So they make sure and include the point of their response to that, which I disagree with in the context of international law and the Geneva Conventions. But nonetheless, they point it out and say the fact that what they're doing in this case would be at the same point. It says, in this lack of implementation, coupled with a sense of impunity, clear evidence that Israel has no intention of ending the occupation, the ongoing, always documented as illegal occupation, and the persistent discrimination against Palestinians that lies at the heart of the the systematic recurrence of violations in both the occupied Palestinian territory, East Jerusalem, and Israel. I always trip up on systemic. I'm like, is it systematic? Systemic? Systemic recurrence. Meaning this is this is a, like talking about systemic racism, this, it, it is ingrained in their structure of Israel's government. The commission identified several overarching issues that lay at the core of most recommendations, including Israel's failure to uphold the laws and customs of war, which is the idea that they're violating, that they're committing war crimes constantly with their use of illegal weaponry and on and on, including those of belligerent occupation, violations and abuses of individual and collective rights, and a lack of accountability. Isn't this amazing how exactly what this, I mean, this is the United Nations calling this out and you won't hear this from CNN or Fox News or anybody else. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that very telling? Now think about the point of Ukraine calling themselves the new Israel, a new bigger Israel that shouldn't be okay to anybody. Quote, our review of the findings and recommendations of previous UN mechanisms and bodies clearly indicates that ending Israel's occupation in full conformity with Security Council resolutions remains essential in stopping the persistent cycle of violence. So if we stop their occupation, the problem will stop, which, by the way, any Palestinian would have told you decades ago. It is only with the ending of occupation that the world can begin to reverse historical injustices as in the occupation of Palestine, and move towards self-determination of the Palestinian peoples, according to the commissioner. Commissioner Chris uh, Sidoti added, quote, Israel clearly has no intention of ending the occupation. In fact, it has established clear policies to ensure complete permanent control over the occupied Palestinian territory. Right. So let's, let's acknowledge the farce that was the deal of the century, because that's what that was, a lie And within that lie, package was the occupied entire control of the occupied territories, which is the point. They continue to do exactly what the deal said they weren't supposed to do. It's just a veneer. Their goal is complete occupation. This includes altering the demography of the territories. So, you know, ethnic cleansing through the maintenance of repressive environment for Palestinians and a favorable environment for Israeli settlers. 
And that's, you know, including the overt demolition of their homes and illegal policies. Israel's policies and actions build Palestinian frustration and lead to a sense of despair. They fuel the cycle of violence and the protraction of conflict. The report also notes that the Palestinian Authority, something Robert always talks about, frequently uses the occupation as a justification for its own human rights violations and as the core reason for its failure to hold legislative and presidential elections. It's a farce. The Palestinian Authority is not on the Palestinian side. Very powerful, but probably won't lead to any big change until people make it the change. Pretty powerful, though, nonetheless. Now, one last note on foreign policy is what happens to the puppets of the U.S., which is probably what's going to happen to Zelensky at some point, which is what happened to the Kurds, which is what's happening right now to Guaido. Oh, remember that guy? Remember the official president of the of the of Venezuela, as they all actually said multiple times. You know, it was interim first, but then they just went with president for a long time. And then suddenly he just didn't exist anymore. Oh, yeah. Right about the time when they needed the help from Maduro, they just suddenly stopped caring about Guaido. Well, here's Venezuela. This is from Garland Nixon. Venezuelan citizens attack U.S. puppet Juan Guaido at a restaurant. Of course, the corporate media framed this differently, acting like he started some commotion. No, he was attacked. They're tearing his shirt off as he ran for his life. The point is, this is what it looks like to sell your soul to the Western war machine. They drop you like a bad habit. The moment you're no longer useful. Hashtag interim president. Hashtag Jeannie Anes. You know, the Bolivian example of the same thing. Hashtag democracy. Jeannie Anes is in prison right now. You know, the, the rightful president of the Bolivia they put in place. <laughs> That's how that works. They don't have the control right now. They want thin and these people are falling like flies. But that's what it looks like. How, if he's the true president, why aren't we moving heaven and earth to put him back? It's the rightful person, isn't it? Well, they're currently dealing with Maduro to make sure they can help with the boil issue. And so it doesn't even matter anymore, right? So either it didn't matter at all, or you care more about your own agenda than the truth. Either way, these are liars. Now, moving on to the Rimram, vanilla ISIS, Russian imperial movement PSYOP. This is a really important conversation because you've been hearing us talk about this. This has been coming. We've been calling this. But question everything. We don't know how this is going to go forward. I could still be wrong. I think it's important to recognize that the what we expected to happen is continuing to happen. Now, I'm going to try. I'll bring this up with Whitney when we connect as well, possibly. Maybe we'll won't have time because it's going to be focusing on a bigger conversation. But this is an interesting the way this is going. Jennifer Hasler of, the, of CNN reports the United States government today. This was yesterday, designated an individual connected to. So not so it's interesting, not the Russian film movement per se, but somebody connected to them. Are they part of the group? Well, not necessarily. They trained with them at one point that they say that I hard to prove. So okay, they, they, they designate this one person. So the watch out, let me finish the comment. An ultranationalist white supremacist organization as a terrorist and sanctioned two other people involved in the group. Okay, so let me ask you this: if this is the big point. Right. These are the big dangerous ones that we need to focus on for the focal point of the white supremacy issue around the world, right? The transnational white supremacy. That's what this is. That's what they're doing here. Where have they been? Right. Where's the where are the all the articles written about the rising problem, of the Russian imperial movement over the last 10 years? There's an endless amount talking about the Azov Battalion. All the corporate media just could not get them out of their mouths up right up until February 25th when they stopped existing, apparently constantly talking about the grasping, reaching international movement of white supremacy that the Aza Battalion is growing and working with different groups and subtly suggesting Russia was involved, even including Russian imperial movement aside, alongside them. But yet the focal point of the Aza movement was clearly what they talked about this entire time. 
But now this comes to play. It's weird, isn't it? I'll make my points as we go through it. But on top of that, the individuals they point out. It's weird that these names are only sort of now just popping up. Why weren't they the focal point the entire time? You know what was weird, though? All the people you can tie back to the Azov movement were constantly talked about. All the people with the Rise Above movement, all the people in all the different groups, Autumn Waffen Division, all these different groups that have direct connections with the Azov movement. Oh, man, they just couldn't stop pointing out how they were a rising white supremacy movement. So my question, I guess, is why suddenly are we no longer pointing at that and now suddenly only focusing on one part of this it hasn't been talked about a lot up until now, that is a very flimsy connection at best. I'll let you answer that for yourself. But know today that they have, de have designated these three people that they want to associate with the Russian imperial movement as a problem, a terrorist problem of white supremacy, of, of, of the international, transnational white supremacy reach. Now, what I want us to remember in this is that, as I'll make clear, this movement is sketchy at best in regard to what it actually connects with. It's there, it's real, and it is white supremacist as far as we can tell. And it does have roots in Russia, but we'll make clear how it's as, as, on the record as they've even been forced to report that that's not, they do not openly support Russia's government, which you could argue is a plan. And they've been in, raided by the Russian government. They talk out about Putin and so on and so on. It doesn't seem to be the kind of connection they want it to be. On top of that, that we can see an overlap between this group and groups that are directly connected to the Azov movement, which we've proven to you is connected directly to the CIA. So when you can see a provable connection to your government, but yet they just say, well, Russian, therefore is Russian. Where's the provable connection to the Russian government? I'm not saying it's not there. Wouldn't surprise me at all. But now we're at a point where we can prove connections to the CIA. And I will show you connections directly between RIM Russian Imperial Movement and RAM, the Rise Above Movement, and the groups that are directly tied to the Azov Movement that we can tie back to the CIA. Now, I don't know why that wouldn't be more important. Well, it's because we know they've had this plan to use this against Russia. I'm just going to jump ahead real quick to this one, which we've made clear before, which is not just Azov Movement. Documents from the CIA themselves prove they've been doing this since 1948. That's back when it was the Soviet Union, trying to use this fascist entity to throw at the Soviet Union. That didn't stop, is the point. It continued. I was going to grab that real quickly. Here it is, just so you guys can reference that, should you, should you so choose. Project Aerodynamic. Now, I won't go into that again today, because there's a lot to get into there. But the point is that that's interesting, isn't it? That they've been building this. And then suddenly this happens and it's in the same place, in the same location with the same white supremacy problem, the same fascist entity. But now it's all Russia. But they were using it against them. So what happened? They lose control of it? Did Russia take over it? Well, none of that's in the conversation. It's just simply always Russia, always been there. And that's why it's coming bite you. Now, I'm also going to show you how they will quietly and subtly try to connect these ideas with the Republican movement, with the MAGA, QAnon, whatever else happening here. And it's not, it's not very subtle. It's pretty damn clumsy, if you ask me, to lay all of this, the old white supremacy problem at Russia's feet, and of course, then kind of patch that into Ukraine somehow. But let's go through this. This is from 2020 first. We're well, starting with a couple background things first. This is from War on the Rocks. This is from 2020 from February 4th. If the shoe fits, designating foreign white supremacy extremist groups. Now, remember, this is before obviously, February 25th, 2022, but also way after the current narrative that's sort of like post-2016, the Aza Battalion just became nothing and they just integrated with the government and it all went away. But that's not what they were saying right up until February 25th, 2022. Not they being like the entire collective of the Western corporate media, which is just, I can't get past how dumb that is. Same with COVID-19. 
You can look up their own articles right up until the beginning of 2022 that call Azaz's movement as the biggest possible threat, the biggest grasping transnational entity everywhere, white supremacy, and then just suddenly, no, no, you don't understand. Putin's exaggerating. Why can't people see that? Again, I think they do. It's about recognizing that we all see it and we're they're pretending that we don't. But here's what this says. Oh, I forgot to look at who that was. He doesn't really say. That's interesting. Now it goes on to say, while many white supremacists in 2020, remember, act pursuant to domestic influences and therefore do not qualify as international terrorists under federal law, over the past few years, foreign white supremacist groups such as the Russian Imperial Movement, oh, and the Azov Battalion, have recruited, trained, and radicalized U.S. citizens sympathetic to their causes. So I just want to make sure you see this first. It's weird that they were patching them together back then, right? Like they're the same thing. And you'll see this common thread right up until February 25th. It's weird, isn't it? It's almost like they realized they lost control of the Azov part of it and just kind of threw it off the edge. But how can they be, in 2020, a huge part of recruiting, training, and radicalized U.S. citizens in this international reach when they stopped being that in 2016 and Putin's exaggerating it's not real? Obviously, I've made that point 100 times, but just see that as the overlap of what they're trying to dump these things together. They wanted this to be at Russia's feet, and it's very clear. That's not even my opinion. Their previous documentation makes that suggestion. But just seeing that they are, at the very least, pre-2022, the same thing in their mind. Just as bad, just as problematic, which is the complete opposite. I mean, for crying out loud, our government is literally funding them right now. Nothing different. Same people, same group, same. I mean, even after 2019, when they pretended that all the bad Azov, the, the um, Arkov was his name, the, the leader that was the real Nazi. He went away and then it stopped being a problem. Well, no, he's actually back in control now. But the point is, this is 2020. And at that time, they were calling them exactly at the very least parallel to the Russian imperial movement. It's interesting how clumsy this all is. Now, here's what it says. While Afghanistan was the global mecca for jihadist extremist groups. It's not true. I mean, come on, guys. This is just them trying to, well, like Afghanistan was the thing that we, no, it wasn't Afghanistan. In fact, it was primarily the Saudi Arabian Wahhabism mentality that actually drove the real problem of of the ISIS mentality or Al-Qaeda, the rest of them, that actually began with the creation of yet another fascist entity in Afghanistan to use against the Soviet Union, the Mujahideen. Interesting overlap. It's exactly the same thing, just like exactly like what they did in Syria. It's the same playbook, one, two, and three. They're doing it all over again. The point is Afghanistan was only like this because of what they did. And in fact, it wasn't the Mecca for jihadist extremism. It was the justification they used to invade Afghanistan and destroy it to this day. But then it goes on just because we want to compare it to the impetus for the beginning of the war on terror. Like Afghanistan, they say, Ukraine has become a global Mecca for white supremacy extremist groups to assemble to train in regular warfare, radicalize and develop transnational networks, with Russia also playing a significant role. Okay, so what's funny, though, is that they're not talking about the Donbass region, which is where the only place, by the way, they point at and say the Russian imperial movement was involved. Oh, yeah, they were in the Donbass region over there fighting with them. That's their narrative. So explain explain for me how the entirety of Ukraine can be a global mecca for white supremacy when that is in 2020 an obvious U.S. entity, an obvious at least support of the U.S. government and arming of the Azov movements in 2016, since 2018. Isn't that funny? How can it be an entire country if that's the opposite of what they're saying today? Anybody can see the inconsistency here. They are covering up something. It says, thus far, 17,000 people from 50 countries, including the United States, have traveled to Ukraine at the behest of the Russian Imperial Movement and the Azov Battalion. (laughs) See, it's just, it's one and the same in the way they cover this argument. And you'll find this in every conversation pretty much before they change their narrative. 
following the conflict, members of the Azov Battalion and the Russian Imperial Movement. Now I'm going to make the case, by the way, that this is the, Ru- the Azov Movement, which is what it became and what it is at this point anyway, post-2015, essentially. That the Russian Imperial Movement has basically no evidence of actual involvement here other than a couple of documents and a couple of, of people that went to fight in the Donbass region that you can prove. And that's about 2016. From that point forward, it becomes really hazy, and it becomes intelligence groups arguing about an international reach without pretty much anything to back it up. Whitney's made this clear. But on the other hand, the corporate media just could not stop pointing out the Aza Battalion was had international reach and proving it, showing you going on the ground and filming them doing things. I mean, it was everywhere. Isn't that interesting? But it says their aim was to return to their, or the following the conflict, both members of the Azov movement and the Russian imperial movement, they say, Their aim was to return to their origin countries or relocate to third-party countries in order to cause widespread terror and destruction and recruit through use of violence. Wake up, Europe. That's the point. Azov movement has openly said this is their agenda. This is the plan. I'll make that clear with the next article, that they plan to move on to Europe and so on. So it's interesting how they're pointing at Russia and saying Putin's plan to go from country to country and overthrow the world is exactly what the Azov movement is openly saying they're going to do and reignite the white race around the world or whatever their phrase was. Isn't that amazing that this is what's fake news and they're pointing at it right here? How can the Azov Battalion in 2020 plan to move on to other countries and cause widespread terror destruction and then suddenly just shifts over to freedom movements they were fighting for for freedom in the U.S. government and it's it's just lazy. For instance, it says, Swedish neo-Nazi bombers, and this is where it relates to the point of today, Victor Mellon, who we've already referenced before, who has connections all over the place to the Azov, the connect groups that are tied to the Azov movement, and Anton Thulin, which is one of the people they designated tied to the Russian Imperial Movement uh, just recently, attended a Russian Imperial Movement-affiliated paramilitary training camp. So right out of the gate, understand what they're saying is not necessarily the Russian Imperial Movement, but they went to a group that's affiliated with them and got some training. Now, by the way, since this point, it simply becomes they went to train with the Russian Imperial Movement. You can read the link for yourself. It may, very well may be, but it's interesting how it's so easy to just kind of fudge the information. Did they go and train with the Russian Imperial Movement or did they go to a, an affiliated group and do so? It's quite a bit different, isn't it? There's a lot of, I mean, look, this would be the equivalent of saying because somebody marched with the Rise Above Movement that therefore they're part of the Azov Battalion. Now, they're very clearly connected, and you know that makes it an important point to show how they're the, as the Azov Movement and Rise Above Movement would call themselves the U.S. arm of the Azov Movement. But nonetheless, just because you're in the Rise Above Movement does not therefore make you in the Azov Battalion, does it? So it's just, it's a reach. But you'll see as we go forward, that's what they're all going to say. They, that's why they're on this list, because they're part of, or rather they trained with, the RIM, the Russian Imperial Movement. Now, it goes on to say the Russian Imperial Movement's connections in the United States include the Traditionalist Worker Party founded by Matthew Heimbach, which we'll point out in a minute. One of the most, and this is my, in my opinion, this is the most obvious connection to what we're talking about. Matthew Heimbach, who was a key organizer of what? The Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. We've already gone over this, guys. The Unite the Right rally in its entirety was directly coordinated with the Azov movement and people of the Rise Above movement, as well as the Autumn Waffen Division, as well as Matthew Heimbach himself, have direct connection to the Azov movement. So at the very least, you have to recognize these people are tied, as the same argument they're making about the affiliated group and the Russian affiliated movement, to the Azov battalion. So I'm not, that's not proof, 
that they're necessarily only you know part of this agenda, but the point is they're being influenced by the groups that are very clearly being built and organized by the CIA. That's this is undeniable. As I've made, let me just grab this really quickly. My tweet that I put up—it's real it's easy, one-stop thing to remember to grab. But then, as they've made clear themselves in the past, now and it's funny. Somebody made this point the other day, like you trust the FBI, and it's like, no, who said that? That's a dumb thing to say. Nobody. I, this this show doesn't trust damn near anybody. Question everything. But the point is, this post is from the FBI, who is acknowledging that they are directly connected to the Azov movement, as it says, Olenia Semenya. The leader of the International Department for the National Corps, which is a political party of the Azov movement, openly discusses their connections with the with the people in Germany, Ukraine, and Italy. And then we can see one of the experts on this talking with Newsweek, I believe, and he points out, as we've shown before, that the movement gone international. And those are the groups we're talking about. Germany's Third Pond, Italy's Casa Pond, or excuse me, yeah, Third Path, and America's Rise Above Movement. These are the international arms of the Azov movement pretty clear. And when you know, as they admit, that the CIA has been arming and funding them, as the CIA operative in foreign policy admitted that they've been doing this since 2015, it becomes really impossible not to acknowledge the connection, the influence, the agenda playing out. Now, going forward, it says, similarly, the Yaza Battalion has cultivated a relationship with U.S.-based white supremacy extremist groups like the Ottomwaffen Division, which is tied to three fatal attacks. And here's the point, guys. The Ottomwaffen Division, the Rise Above, all these different groups they're pointing at, well, specifically Ottomwaffen, these are the groups they're acknowledging. And I'm not saying we, I'm not taking any of this at face value, that these groups are part of the attacks, they're blaming them for, and so on. There's a lot of misinformation flying around. My point is, as always, to argue from within their narrative. They're saying this before. This now challenges what they're saying today. Not the, in, the implication is not even that either of them are true, but there is some re- truth to some of this stuff. The point is that they're showing you that they're lying to you right now, depending on which side of the narrative you look at. So what they're pointing out here is that the Azov Battalion is the same idea, that they're working with extremist groups, specifically the Ottomwaffen Division, which they claim are tied to multiple attacks, fatal attacks, 2017, 2018. You, you don't have the same arguments for the Russian imperial movement. Not even remotely. And it says the Rise Above Movement, a militant group whose members engaged in several acts of violence. Now, again, that's what they're saying. My simple point is you can prove the Rise Above Movement and people like Matthew Heimbach with the key organizer of the Unite the Right rally that they use to blame everything on Republicans and conservatives, which is an agenda. Now, don't forget, two-party illusion. They're calling me a conservative if they so choose. It's just about creating a scapegoat that you can blame all of this on and pretend that that's the divide and conquer aspect is what we're talking about. This is the vanilla ISIS discussion, guys. Goes on to say, a foreign terrorist organization designated the foreign-based white supremacy extremist groups like the Russian Imperial Movement and the Azov Battalion would allow federal prosecutors to charge individuals who have become militarized and or trained by these groups with this, with this uh, legislation. Now think about how crazy that is. Right, so they're talking about the U.S. legislation here. Now isn't that exactly what's happening right now? So they're demonizing these people that are going to train with the Russian Imperial Movement that they call a terrorist organization. Simultaneously, at this time, they were calling the Azov Battalion the same thing. And yet right now, even though this is still on the books, people are going to train with the Azov Battalion. Isn't that a crime? Now, even if you, let's just say that you think they're different. Let's say everything's changed since 2020. The argument is that people are going to become, people who have become militarized and are trained by these groups. 
Well, that's happening constantly right now in the Azov movement. And they're openly discussing things like militarized training and shooting and bomb making and so on. But just because it's under the flag of Ukraine's war against Russia suddenly it becomes okay. So what's the actual difference here? If they're going to train with the Russian imperial movement and you're making that out to be the biggest terrorist threat since anything you point at, there's really no difference other than narrative, is there? I think that was it in here. Going forward, we go back a couple years. This is 2018. Oh, son of a gun. I forgot about It's not that long. I forgot the hill doesn't keep it refreshes. Shoot. But it's not that long. So here it is in 2018. And it's entitled, When we can't agree to fight against neo-Nazis, we've reached a new low. Right. They're talking about the Aza Battalion. Right. So he's pointing out something that's really contradictory to where we are today. Here's what it says. For anyone wondering about the state of American politics in 2018, a U.S. congressman, he's talking about Ro Khanna, or uh, is it, yeah, Ro Khanna, was just, he was just publicly accused of spreading Russian propaganda and holding Putin's dirty laundry. The congressman's crime? Trying to prevent weapons from going to the Azov Battalion. Last, late last month, Congress authorized a massive aid package to Ukraine. The package contained a provision whose inclusion was supported by Ro Khanna. Remember, the 2016 point is that they did the same thing, the same thing, and they quietly removed it because the Pentagon asked them to. How do we not see what that shows us? They passed a bill that said, nope, we can't arm these bad guys. But then the Pentagon came and said quietly, hey, remove that. We need to keep arming these people. And they did. So from 2016 forward, they removed the ban on funding neo-Nazis. Literally for funding neo-Nazis. Now ask yourself why the Pentagon would quietly remove the the restriction from funding neo-Nazis pretty obvious, isn't it? Because they wanted to fund neo-Nazis. How do we miss this stuff? Alongside all the information that shows you that they're arming them from long before or that it's always been happening. You know, it, takes, it takes a child-level intellect to not see what they're doing. But he called this out. The provision bars U.S. aid from going to the 3,000, which much more than 3,000 even then, Aza Battalion, as they point out that they're neo-Nazis with a long record of human rights abuses, according to the UN, Human Rights Watch, but, you know, fake news today. In response, Hill contributor published an essay denying the neo-Nazi elements of Azov and accused Rokana of being a Russian stooge. Sound familiar? Harrison provided no evidence to support the smear. We see this everywhere. Russia gate all over again. But he didn't need any. He simply accused Khanna of being in league with Vladimir Putin. And apparently that was enough. This story of a congressman openly attacked for the sin of refusing to arm white supremacists serves as a dire warning about not only anti-Semitism, but the danger of stifling debate and allowing baseless accusations of the media. Now, what's funny is this was an agenda at the time, right? To argue, first of all, to, I think, to implant the idea that there was some growing white supremacist threat, which I simply don't agree with. They exist, obviously. But the idea that this is some massive thing, as we can see it being cobbled together by the CIA, I just don't believe it. They wouldn't have to fake it if it was real. But the bottom line is people hear this coverage, they think that I'm somehow towing a government line because they just don't listen to what the argument is. They think I'm a, a left fighting, exposing the, the, the Republicans' white supremacy or in reverse, covering for the Republicans. So, so end up the two-party paradigm hates me. They always have, either side of it. But the obvious point here is that this is an illusion being built to demonize whoever they want to claim is this certain ideology, whether or not they actually believe it. Because as I said before, I don't buy for one second that even the, a, a, a large portion of Republicans actually believe the kind of things they're painting here. But it goes on to say, 
I'll make sure that I finish reading that attack for the uh, serve as a dire warning. Not only yeah, the, the stifling debate essentially. It says first a bit of context. It says this isn't the guy's first time defending neo Nazis, right? So that's, they're all doing that today. You understand? Like it's amazing this is being called out in 2018 to the point to where they even go so far as to be like, look, I've called this out the entire time. I'm here proving they're neo Nazis. But now today it's completely the other side. It's flipped the other way. How embarrassing is that? He's gone so far. He's gone to bat for the Azov Battalion in the Huffington Post, 2015, and the Hill in 2017, and now again in the Hill. Each time he employs the same uncomplicated Orwellian logic: Azov is not neo-Nazi. Azov has been smeared by Russian propaganda. Anyone who disagrees is a Kremlin puppet. Sound familiar, guys? It's being used again. He goes on to say, I'm not going to waste time here proving Ozov's neo-Nazi nature because I've already done so in an exhaustive rebuttal in the 2017 essay. Anyone who doubts whether or not a battalion whose leader once stated that Ukraine's mission is to lead the white races of the world in a final crusade for their survival against the Semite-led group is a, is a neo-Nazi can read the piece and decide for themselves. Ozov's neo-Nazi contingent has been confirmed, funny enough, before 2022, right? Before February 25th. Apparently has been confirmed by the New York Times, by the Daily Beast, by the USA Today, by Foreign Policy, by The Guardian, by BBC, by Reuters, by all these different groups. They've confirmed this, except it's fake news today. Get in the picture? Something collapsed in their narrative. They were laying this groundwork. Now, where's the Russian imperial movement in all of this? Aren't they the biggest thing since sliced bread everywhere? Aren't they building a transnational network that we all can see, apparently? Except they weren't anywhere in the discussion right up until today. Isn't that funny? Come on, guys, this is just painfully obvious. They were building the argument that the Azov movement was clearly a problem. It, even going in so far as to argue that there were people defending them, and guess who they were? Ooh, the Republicans are defending this. Indeed, even the Atlantic Council at the time stood up and championed arming Kiev, but does not defend Azov, but simply argues that they shouldn't reach the battalion. Because they know that if they arm them in general, they'll find the way to the battalion anyway, which is what they're doing today. Right this moment, it's on the books that it's illegal to arm the Azov Battalion. Ever since 2018, it's still there. Even if it goes to the government, then goes to them, it's still a crime. They just don't care. They, they, they pretend like you're too stupid to acknowledge that they're breaking the law by doing so. Because virtue signaling, because narrative. Because Russia, bad guy, therefore we don't care about the law? Well, yeah, that works for them every single day. Is it, is it illegal to, cur to murder people in that country? Well, yeah, but freedom, though. You know, freedom and, and, and bad guy, so we have to. So starve them to death because freedom. It seems to work. Still happening in Yemen, still happening in Iraq, still happening, in, still happening everywhere. It says, therein lies the problem. But at this point, Harrison's, it's all criminalized defense is so repetitive, it's arguing with him over, uh, it says, uh, excuse me, Harrison's, it's all criminalized defense is so repetitive that arguing with him over whether Azov involves neo-Nazis is beginning to feel like arguing with someone over whether the Holocaust involved Nazis, or so on. Verifiable proof from established Western media outlets means nothing if the other side insists that it's all conspiracy. Sound familiar? That's what's happening today. Oh, the vaccine causes causes problem. Oh, conspiracy. It doesn't even matter. Where's the proof? Ah, conspiracy. Dangerous anti-science conspiracy. They're calling out exactly what's happening today, but in reverse. So as always, they lost control of this at some point. But in the end, it says it's not about any of that. It's about something far more ominous, a media climate that enables a commentator to repeatedly publish the type of material one usually finds on conspiracy blogs. Right, so he's literally pointing at the people that are arguing these they're not anti-Semitic, excuse me, anti uh, neo-Nazis. 
and saying that they're conspiracy theorists. Isn't it crazy how quickly that shifted? I think, and then again, they make the point. They literally call out Charlottesville. That's obviously a, an anchor to this entire thing. Yet Charlottesville was put on by people that are directly tied to the CIA. Just incredible. And then here's the, if you want to read through it, this goes back to 2017, where they are going out of their way to say the reality of neo-Nazis in Ukraine is far from Kremlin propaganda. Now they just pretend like that shifted. Except don't forget, they were literally calling it out in 2020 and 2021 and right in the beginning of 2022, right up until this all fell apart. So this brings us to the today argument, or rather yesterday, of the U.S. imposes terrorist designation on man tied to Russian white supremacist group. A little abstract, right in the title. The United States government on Wednesday designated an individual connected to the RIM movement, the Russian imperial movement, an ultra-nationalist white supremacist organization, as a terrorist and sanctioned the other two for involvement with the group. On Wednesday, the State Department announced it was designating Anton Thulin as a specially designated global terrorist. It's a gigantic thing to put on somebody with so flimsy connections to everything else. Now, I'm not saying he's not what they say he is. I'm simply pointing out that there's a lot of people out there that are far, far more obviously in that category that aren't designated, usually because they work alongside the good guys. Quote, for posing a significant risk of committing acts of terrorism, right? So this is pre-crime, sort of, saying that because of this, and here's the point, they'll say it down here, that because his training and his lack of acknowledgement that he's trying not to be this bad guy, therefore we think he's going to do more. Thulin, a Swedish national, traveled to Russia in 2016. Right, that, again, it goes all the way back to the point that Whitney made in her article. Quote, and received paramilitary training, look at that, from the Russian imperial movement, including in bomb making, bomb making, says Ned Price from the State Department. But wait a minute, we just went over this. It wasn't from the Russian imperial movement, it was from people associated with the Russian imperial movement. See how quickly that just gets kicked to the side? Nah, it's the same thing. No, it's not exactly. That's, that's, that's a lie to cobble together direct connection to the Russian imperial movement, even though there was none. The United States is designating Anton Tholen because his continued pursuit of terrorist training, even after serving his prison sentence for his role in the 2017 attack in Sweden, demonstrates that he continues to pose a significant risk of committing acts of terrorism. So because he trained in 2016 with a group that was associated with the RIM movement, that somehow demonstrates he's continued to train? That's what they just said. He went to prison in 2017. They didn't seem to suggest any provable evidence that he's continued to do so. I'm, I mean, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm just pointing out what they're writing. Maybe there is. Wouldn't surprise me. But because he, the, just don't miss that that's what they're pointing at. They continue preservative training in 2016. So we're going to designate him a current significant risk? That seems a little flimsy to me. The U.S. Tra- no, just to be clear, in no way am I suggesting this is a good person. <laughs> this is obviously a bad guy. My point here is that this is flimsy when there's so many other examples of people that are currently in the Ukrainian government that have verifiably committed bigger acts than this. The U.S. Treasury also slapped sanctions on European-based Rise Above Movement member Stanislav Shevchuk and Russian-based supporter Alexander Chukovsky. So they say this, one of these people is a member. Don't make any example about what anything that has done. So because of this one abstract attack that somebody ties to people working with them, therefore this guy that's part of it is also just bad too. It's flimsy is all I'm pointing out. These are white supremacy movements. So make sure you hear that. Not defending these groups, but trying to acknowledge that there's a very flimsy grounding uh, ground for these claims. 
He says this says Shuvchuk was sanctioned for quote having acted or purported to act for or on behalf of directly or indirectly Rim. Wow, <laughs> that's for, for having acted or purported to act for or on behalf of directly or indirectly Rim. So he did something somewhere in the world that's probably connected to them. Therefore, terrorist. Then it says. Uh, Zerkchovsky, quote, for having materially assisted, sponsored, or provided financial material or technological support for, or goods and services for, or in support of, RIM. Pretty damn abstract, as we're watching people carry out acts of terror in Donbass right now, using cluster bombs and all sorts of other things, open characters that are openly acknowledging these things, or even going outside of Ukraine, people that they currently work with, members of government around the world that have carried out worse acts. How about just the U.S. government in general? How about the UK government in general? How about the Saudi Arabian government? How about Mohammed bin Salman? Plenty of people that have openly carried out gigantic acts of genocide. But no, this guy who, in some abstract way that we can't even really define, did something in support of or with an attached to this group. According to the Treasury statement, Shuvak, quote, traveled to the United States in 2017 with the objective of establishing connections between RIM and the far-right extremists and white nationalist groups, which they're talking about the Rise Above Movement. They're talking about all the groups that we can prove are part of the Azov Battalion. The point, though, is that so they know he traveled there, and then he did some stuff that we can't actually quantify. Narrative. Since 2014, Jakovsky has raised over 2 million rubles and, and to purchase weapons and military equipment for RIM and other pro-Russian fighters in the Donbass and Ukraine. Okay, so he's arming people, defending themselves. Now, look, you could argue this is a bad guy, that he's doing terrible things in Ukraine. Certainly possible, but they should have to prove it, shouldn't they? But the bottom line is, how is this any different than arming the neo-Nazis who alternatively, they just were calling that pre-2022, right up until the beginning of that, equally as dangerous as the Russian imperial movement, right? Citing them as the same thing. So the point is, if they're simply pointing out that all he did was raise money to help arm people defending the Donbass region, and you could argue they're all terrorists or whatever argument you want to make, that's the same thing as the U.S. government, but far, far, far bigger, sending over billions of dollars of weapons to neo-Nazis on the ground that are currently there. Simply depends on how you choose to perceive it, which side you think is the good guy, bad guy. How about the fact that none of this is okay? The bottom line, though, is if you're pointing out this guy, there's a choice to highlight some small factor of a larger situation that is far more obvious. That seems like an agenda. And he goes on to say, since Russia began its unprovoked war, which is not what happened, against Ukraine in February 2022, Zerchovsky has continued using his social media accounts and online payment methods to purchase military equipment and supplies for Russian fighters carrying out invasion of Ukraine. Now, where's the connection to RIM here? There's arguments that they did this in two, since 2014. That's pointing all the way back to 2016, the same single example that they can prove. That's all they have to hold on to about five or six fighters in different groups being sent into the Donbass region. We can prove that. The narrative of it anyway. But all he's ultimately pointing at is he's helping Russia fight the war in Ukraine. You see, they just want you to clumsily patch that together with the fact that they support the Rise Above movement. Or excuse me, again, Russian imperial movement. I think there's meant to be an interesting lap there that they're trying to hide now. My point, though, is that that's not the reality. Even the, on the, the, the documentation they have shows you, other than wink, wink, nudge narrative about what Putin really means and how he actually works with them behind the scenes because he must because they're all terrorists. 
they don't work with the the Russian imperial movement, that they've raided their offices, that they speak out about Putin. Now, yes, that all could be fabricated. But in, unless there's some kind of counter evidence, you don't just get to go, that's fake because we know he's actually this. That's child level logic. So that's all they got, guys. That is their argument. Here is BuzzFeed News from 2017. These Swedish Nazis trained in Russia before bombing a center for asylum seekers. Now, what we're going to do is go name by name with uh, the Stanislav individual, the Alexander individual, and then finally the uh, Thulin individual, actually Thulin first, and show you some interesting connections here. This says, security analysts worry that the Ukraine conflict fueled a transformation of right-wing extremist groups across the West. That's 2017. So in this discussion here, you can see the name highlighted. Talk about Thulin in general and how they're talking about the involvement in different acts and so on. There we go. And they again tied to Victor Millen and talk about SOT training in Russia precisely because they believed leaders of the organization were growing soft and the Nordic resistance movement, all these groups that obviously have direct connections with the Rise Above movement. But it says they, uh, basically the point was, oh wait, did I skip the first part? There, it's right here. Okay, so I'm getting ahead of myself. So the point was, they're talking about him and the con- the, con- the concept of what they're doing in general, and they're pointing at Ukraine, which is interesting because where did Ukraine come into play? in 2017, other than talking about people sent to Donbass. It says, quote, there's a state actor or proxies for a state actor that is supporting these networks. Of course, they're they're trying to make, you know, they're going, Russia, it's Russia, but that's not the truth. Or at the very least, it, I'll show you why that can't be the entire story. And that's a game changer, they said. This is the director of research for Europe and Eurasia, the Atlantic Council, of course. He's, I think that's a problem. Like, you obviously have a state actor in mind. It's pretty obvious and transparent to just there they the whole article is insinu- is in uh, in insinuating that it's Russia but here's an interesting point obviously they're trying to make this out to be them but look at who they point at right here this is the image they're pointing at to make the reference of what they just said who are they pointing at Ukraine's voluntary militia called the battalion of Azov I just think that's funny like so this is meant to be something that was connected to this agenda it's it's obviously patched together with the Azov movement tied to the Russian imperial movement that's meant to be blamed on Russia. That's why in this earlier article, going back, they were patching them as the same thing. Both is dangerous, both the transnational movement. Now going forward, it says, Russian's imperial movement, the Russian imperial movement, RIM, which says it's on its website that it aims to reestablish Russia as a mono-ethnic state. It says, though, it declares that it wants Putin's regime replaced by by a restored Russian autocratic monarchy. Yeah, oops, that doesn't really work for you, does it, when you tell them they don't work together? Now, yes, there could be, and maybe that's all a big ploy, but there's no evidence of that. They just simply argue that it is Russia working with them because, as they say, it's allowed to operate freely in Russia and networks abroad. Well, that's not even true. As we keep showing you, they've spoken out about them. They've been raided by Russia's government. Now, again, all could be a ploy, but how about we then contrast that with what we're talking about with the United States government? What about the Rise Above movement? They seem to be operating freely in this country. Well, yeah, because they have a right to. They're free speech and so on. You can call them disgusting. Now, when they act in violence, when they break the law, well, yeah, then arrest them for it. Charge them for a crime. Feel free to call them disgusting human beings for the beliefs that you think are disgusting, but they have a right to do so. 
It's amazing that's even a, content, a, con- a contentious statement today. Once the law is broken, there's your line. They can stand there and scream the most disgusting things you could possibly imagine because that's their right. That's being attacked today. And I would call them disgusting for saying disgusting things. Just because you argue that someone might overhear those things and then be violent because of them does not change that it's his right to speak those things. The person who then acts on those things, then they can be held accountable. You don't trace it back to where he heard it and go, you're all responsible. That's ridiculous. But the point is, you could argue those groups have free access to the United States. So is that the same argument? Why would it be argued that they would shut them down? I mean, you, you get the point. There may and, and even the idea that they're allowed to freely operate is not even true. Russian nationalists were not natural bedfellows for these two Swedish Nazis that people were talking about. Thulin. The Ukrainian side had attracted its own share of foreign fighters, many of whom had ties to Nazi groups, in which they linked to, guess what? Azov fighters are Ukraine's greatest weapon and maybe its greatest threat. That's what they linked to right there. We've already read through this. Just all these suggestive points at and nods to the very group where they want to make sure you don't connect right now. First point for Thulin specifically. Okay, here's another point. This is the white supremacy extremism discussion from 2019 from the Sufon Center September. What's funny is it's the, the discussion of the transnational rise of violent white supremacy movement. Guess who's in that main picture on the cover? That's right. You guessed it. Fighters from the Azov Battalion. <laughs> just, I just can't get past how ridiculous it is. They just keep pushing. You guys are lying. Fake news. It's obvious that this was something they wanted you to think until it got exposed. Here's what it says in the document. The Azov Battalion has used this venue as a method for growing its network, including with neo-Nazis from the United States and the West who have traveled to Ukraine to forge bonds, white supremacy extremists from Europe and elsewhere. 2019. Sort of challenges what they say, right? They're the ones building a transnational network. That's what it says in their own documentation. Not that I'm saying that's absolutely what's happening. That's their narrative. Now, here's the last point for Thulin. It says the Russian imperial movement is an ultranationalist quasi-paramilitary organization that describes itself as a monarchistic and stridently orthodox concerned with fighting against globalization, multiculturalism, and liberalism, the Russian imperial movement is part and parcel of the broader international WSE project. Now, it's interesting, by the way, is all, as they're trying to lays the feet of Putin alone, remember that his government in general has taken stances that directly contradict that. With the World Economic Forum, with the Great Reset, with their woke ideas and a lot of this stuff, they've taken the same stances. Could all be a lie, certainly. But it says, to this end, the group has hosted paramilitary training camps and cultivated contacts with other WSE movements and individuals, such as convicted Swedish neo-Nazi bombers Milan and Thulin, who attended a Russian imperial movement-affiliated training camp. There are also indications of Russian imperial movement involvement in the Donbass war, as well as, as potential linkages with American white supremacy groups. Notorious American white supremacists, Matthew Heimbach, who has demonstrated an affinity for terrorist groups like Lebanese Hezbollah, which is not a terrorist group, and provisional Irish Republican Army, maintains links to RIM and has served as a crucial... Let me do this real quick. Served as a crucial... Where were we? Shoot, there we go. Crucial inter, in, inter, uh, uh, a, a connection between white supremacists in the United States and Russia. Heimbach who founded neo-Nazi traditional workers party and was a key organizer of the unite the right rally, as you pointed out, has gone on record to state that Russia is the biggest inspiration for white supremacy extremists and that he and many of his colleagues view Russian president Vladimir Putin as the leader of the free world. 
That's literally the opposite of what we're hearing from everybody in these movements. Like we're talking about the rise above movement, the 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 organizer of the Unite the Right rally, and in general, like he may say that, but that directly contradicts what their groups openly say, and we've already covered this. So this seems very suspicious to me, especially when we're talking about the Charlottesville discussion and how that was obviously the beginning of this push to blame all Republicans and the connection to the Azov movement as the beginning of this. The Russian imperial movement is obviously something that connects all this together. Now here is, oh, and this this is interesting, by the way. I, I want to put this out there that I do think, oh, that was the other point, by the way. We need to remember that what we're talking about here, there's a lot of these holes in the story because they're patching this together as they go. But the Russian imperial movement was over there and fighting with the Donbass movement, the small groupings of people that they claimed that were there in 2016. And since then, there's no evidence of anything else. But they weren't all throughout Ukraine. They were in the Donbass region fighting against the people fighting the separatists. So explain for me how they could then create a transnational network and Ukraine was the central role in that if they were only in the Donbass region. (laughs) Oops. The point was they were including the Azov Battalion, which encompassed the entire area. Like, this is just so transparent. They just lost control of the narrative, and they've seemingly just bumped the Azov Battalion off the conversation. But it's still there. Now, the one of the people, one of the other people they reference is a person named Stanislav Shevchuk. Now, I don't know if this is the same person, but I looked pretty hard for the individual, and all I could find was somebody who appears to be a former judge of the Constitutional Court of Ukraine was born on June 11, 1969, in, in, in Kharkiv, in Ukraine. So I'm, I'm going to leave it there and let people try to find any more, but it'd be very telling for me if one of the people that they highlighted, because here's his name, right there, clearly the same name, calling him a Russian Imperial member, uh, member Russian Imperial Movement member. <laughs> I don't know why that's so hard for me. But I find it interesting. So he's a, this is top legal experts have created a commission to investigate human rights violations in Ukraine. Like you would argue this would make sense. But here's his name. And this is a commission brought together 12 influential lawyers as well as human rights activists. And it lists off the members, one of which was Stanislav Shevchuk. Now, I've looked the name up and there seems to be other people. That maybe it's sort of a common name. So I'm going to leave it there. I'm not saying I know for sure this is the same guy, but it's kind of interesting if it was. Now, on, on in regard to Alexander Shurchovsky. This is the most telling to me. This is a person who wrote a book called 85 Days in, Sla- in Slavya- Slavyans- Slavyanks. And as it says, in 2014, the Maidan Revolution in Ukraine installed a new pro-Western government in Kiev. And the point was, he's part of that. It says right here, 85 Days in Slavyanks is the only book written by an organizer of the 2014 rebellion that has been translated into English. Look at that. Now, here's this is one of people's comments on this. The political and military memoirs of a man involved with the creation of the Azov Battalion after he joined the Patriot of Ukraine paramilitary before the war, more political than the military sketch of events around the author's life, but more useful with the about the Mariupol sector of that war. So this guy's involved with the, the Azov Battalion, involved with the manipulative side of the... Remember, the, the 2014 rebellion was a regime change. This was carried out with the use, and this has been documented by their own acknowledgement, the Azov Battalion in the, in the Maidan Square Revolution. And he's standing here as somebody saying, I was a part of that. So you're part of the Azov movement, a part of the revolution that created the regime change and the regime in place today, and yet you're part of the Russian imperial movement? It's only Russia, and therefore the bad guy, but not Azov Battalion, though. This is meant to be something interconnected. So if this guy who is clearly being indicated 
on this list and be and so ask yourself this if he was part of their regime change in 2014 why is he now being designated as a terrorist by the same entity something doesn't add up does it now just in case you thought that these weren't connected in regard to the russian imperial movement being designated as well as the other groups they label this is from uh, yesterday u.s slap sanctions on russia swedish far-right extremists down here it acknowledges that canada did the same earlier this year followed suit by banning the Russian imperial movement as a terrorist organization, along with who? The Proud Boys. A far-right group involved in January 6th. Why are those happening at the same time? Are they interconnected? They're meant to be. We've been telling you this. The Russian imperial movement being banned as a terrorist organization, along with the Republican Proud Boy, January 6th, dangerous white supremacists. That's why this is supposed to be clumped together in a clumsy, patched way to make it out that these people are working together. And the entire white supremacy problem in Ukraine and around the world is all because of Russia and the dangerous conspiracy theorists in the Republican Party. Now, here's Vladimir, excuse me, uh, uh, Zelensky which is his name, I just was about to say Putin. But the point is Zelensky addressing the American Jewish Committee Forum on Monday and said that, guess what? Russia has set up a filtration camp that resembles Nazi concentration camps, which is really hilarious to me because if that's even valid and we're talking about Nazi or filtration camps, isn't that a valid discussion to have when you're watching people come over into your country knowing that you're fighting a neo-Nazi element that's trying to carry out acts of ethnic cleansing and acts of terrorism against your people? You could call it filtration camps, or you could call it due diligence to make sure that terrorists aren't coming into your country the same way that the U.S. government's doing it right now on the border that everybody else freaks out about right now on the border, right? It's amazing the hypocritical contrast. We can't acknowledge it. It's just because you call bad guy Putin doing it bad. And when we do it, it's for good reasons, though, because we're all six years old, apparently. The point, though, what's interesting, though, is that this is calling, I mean, I was just watching a comment where somebody called Putin Putler. (laughs) Putin's Nazis. Like, it's just so lazy. There's no actual provable evidence that Putin or the Russian government is directly involved with some ultimate white supremacy group. Are they existing in Russia? Yes. Are they existing in U.S.? Yes. Does that? that, So if if you're going to make the argument because they're there, therefore he's part of it, then therefore Biden's part of it. One of them is true. Actually, I shouldn't even say that because I don't think Biden's even aware of what he's going to what he ate this morning. But I think ultimately we can see a intelligence agenda here, trying to accuse them of that which you are guilty. Now, I've covered this a lot. Whitney's article, again, I highly recommend you check out, which, by the way, has been reposted by people all over the place without any credit to Whitney or myself, which is fantastic. Ukraine and the new Al-Qaeda. Well, it's good the information gets out. That's good. But it's important that people do give credit where it's due. This is a great, important conversation about what's going on and how they've been building this, just like with Syria. It's the same thing. Done again. We had, I had the conversation showing you this has been going on since 1948. From before it was called the CIA, the OSS, and then became 53, the CIA, and on their own documentation discussed using this against the Soviet Union. Right? Nationalist flare-ups is widely scattered in areas of the... Oh, that's the set. Hold on. I was going to quickly show it. Yeah, it says uh, a group of anti-Soviet Ukrainian immigrants. It's uh, the ZPR, the contacts, are used, are used to exploited to further the objective of recruiting Soviet citizens. I mean, think about that. They're openly, well, this wasn't open at the time. It's secret, top, not top secret, but secret eyes only, CIA.gov, Project Aerodynamic, but acknowledging that what they're doing is growing a fascist threat using what they was at the time, the Ukrainian Organization of Nationalists, 
and making that a thing to be able to be used to to recruit people from Soviet Union and to attack and dis and exploit the Soviet Union. It's the same thing happening today against Russia. Now you can argue it's for good reason, but you still have to acknowledge that it's happening and they're lying to you about the full story. Now, finally, January 6th, the failed false flag meant to blame Russia and you using the CIA grown Azov battalion. Very important to understand how this is going forward. Now, next, we have the idea that they just pushed out more documentation. Memorandum on the establishment of the White House Task Force to address online harassment and abuse. This, in my opinion, is one more way they're trying to kind of cobble together why one side of the two-party paradigm is are terrorists or whatever, they, whatever, they, just simply the idea in this case, people that are, let's say, acknowledging there's only two genders that then becomes online harassment and abuse against people of that are women or trans or whatever else. And I'll show you how that then translates. So you're just picking something, you know, is a wedge issue between the parties and making it out to be that you, if you have one side of this argument discussion that they then frame as online harassment or abuse, I'm not saying online harassment or abuse are okay. I'm saying that they're framing a statement of fact as online harassment or abuse. And you can see how that can be a thousand things in between as abuse and then using that to basically turn an entire party into terrorism, which is part of it. It's not just about the Republican Party. It's about whoever they claim is part of that. It's a means to an end, to burn it all down, to rebuild whatever they want to do. But it says online abuse and harassment. Specifically in this case, which they've already had plenty of documentation about just, you know, misinformation, therefore violence. So this is a more specific version. It says online harassment, which aim to preclude women from political decision making, which I don't even who's doing that about their own lives and communities undermine the functioning of democracy. So who in the Republican Party is doing so with the aim of removing women from having decision making process? I mean, literally, I don't know anybody actually doing that. There are people that do exist like that. I don't see them in positions of power. I mean, at the very least, they're simply arguing that there are two genders or that transgender discussion should be held a certain way or we don't agree with how you're doing that. Nobody is arguing that women shouldn't be able to make decisions. I mean, what are we, 100 years ago? This is ridiculous. This is as stupid as Biden standing up and saying, look, we have, we have multiracial couples on TV. When have you ever seen that? <laughs> you mean like every day for the last 150 years? Like, yeah, I, that's less than that, actually. But it's been going on for a long time, Biden. You're not, you're not nothing new. But the point here is that this is about framing whatever they want to call that violence. Growing evidence also demonstrates that online radicalization can be linked to gender-based violence which along with other forms of abuse and harassment spans the digital and physical realms. So growing evidence demonstrates that radicalization, so whatever they call that, right? So if you have a certain belief, such as that these injections could be dangerous, but you've been radicalized by the right and be linked to gender-based violence. So there's your abstract connection. So anything they want to call online radicalization, they're just going to link to gender-based violence. Why does gender-based even come into that? This is just clumsy, as I've been saying a lot today, because all seems pretty damn clumsy. But here's the main point that it that was pointed out to me. The U.S. Secret Service. Oh, wait, make sure I didn't miss one of the other ones. I think that was it. Yeah, this one says this U.S. Secret Service's National Threat Assessment Center under the Department of Homeland Security is adding to its research on the nexus between online misogyny and domestic terrorism by preparing a report examining the role of domestic violence as a motive and precursor to mass violence, including an analysis of the prior communications on online presence of the attackers. So as I, as I agree, this is pre-crime stuff. 
But what they're really patching together here, the nexus, which is a word they're using a lot lately, between online misogyny, first of all, just because someone is choosing to be misogynistic, which they have a right to, or rather that they may be calling it that when it may not be, or maybe you say something with not that intention, but they say it is whether you know it or not. You see how it gets really abstract. The point is, if you do that, well, then you can link yourself. They can link you to domestic terrorism because of the role of domestic violence as a motive and precursor to anything else they point at. It becomes very abstract. Now, is there potentially a correlation there? That's all they're holding on to. Yeah. Does that mean that anybody that is misogynist is then going to carry out a mass violent attack? Well, obviously not, but that becomes the point. If they say, look at that thing he said about women, let's keep an eye on him, FBI, because he's probably a violent terrorist. <laughs> it's going to be, it, that's absurd. Bottom line though, my main point is they are now using this to, to categorize people that I would argue is a broad category of the right, not the people that are abusing and online harassing, but just simply taking stances that they call harassment. Don't you have a right to have a different opinion? A right about, I mean, look, you should have a right to say that you don't think transgender should be allowed. I think that's a horrible thing to say. I think that's disgusting. I think people should be allowed to do what they want with their bodies. That's the reverse of saying that people have to take an injection, right? The point is simply that people should be able to make their own damn choices, whether it's an injection or altering their body as long as they're an adult. But the point is you have the right to say these things. And if you do, well, therefore, now you're going to be a potential domestic terrorist. That's how they're building this. And we know that there are a lot of people on the right of this discussion that might say things that they would call abuse, even though we truly know that it's not. It's simply free speech. Now, what about things that are aimed at somebody? What about you just go on, like I just pointed out, and just simply acknowledge there are two genders? They would call that an attack on everybody reading it. You see how this goes. They're building the, pa- the framework, guys. Now, whether or not it gets used is the big question. Now, I've ran long here. We're already over two hours, but I don't think I should care today. We all, I, I have a, I'm just going to go through everything. But let, let's go to the next point here. Representative Dan Bishop laid out a couple of interesting videos that I want to play through. Now, this brought something to my attention that I actually was unaware of. This term specifically, stochastic terrorism. Let me, know, let me know in the chat if you've even heard of that. I, this apparently has been something kind of happening and just being discussed since 2000, uh, was it 2019, 2018? 2019, apparently. But I've, I don't think I've ever seen this before. And this is alarming to me because of how this is being used. What it ultimately mounts to is random. Sto- sto- stochastic means essentially random terrorism. But the idea, and I'll read, I'll actually dive into it after we play the clips, is that you or me, for example, I go online and I say something. Literally whatever you want it to be. Then somebody misconstrues that. Or how about somebody just hears it and that to them means that they should go do something. And they go out and they attack people. And then they even cite what you said as the reason they did it. In the minds of people right now in the Homeland Security, They're trying to lay the groundwork for why you should be legally responsible for that. That's crazy. Not not even to mention the subjective nature of how that will be applied. And how abstract that can really get. Right? The real point is simply that regardless of whether you think that even, whether or not I even intended for that to happen, you're protected by free speech. They are undermining your rights at every single step. Now, these are contentious statements to make today because the argument would be that you can't, you can't incite violence, you can't say fire in a theater, but the point is you ultimately could if we're really going to be honest about free speech. You are in control of your actions. You decide what you do as an individual. 
because you decide to blindly listen and take, or, you know, just take fire in theater, for example. I stand up and I yell fire. Everybody flips out and starts bunching and knocking everybody over. Is that my fault? Well, you could argue it's because of what I said. Now, it's a hard example to push, trust me, because I would argue that's very irresponsible. And if people ultimately were hurt by it, there's, an, there's a discussion that should be had about whether there should be accountability for that. But if you really want to dive in, and this is where free speech matters the most, you have a right to say these things because you have a right to speak your mind. Then everybody around you has a right to choose whether you look crazy, whether they think you're lying, whether they don't ignore you entirely. Now, let's listen to what he has to say here. First tweet says, the Biden man has laid bare the left's plan. Now, I disagree that it's the left versus right. I do believe that it's using that dynamic to divide us. But from the government's perspective, I don't think they care. But it says they want their opposition silenced, so they'll use the levers of the federal government. Now, you hear this, in my opinion, as the government against its detractors. Whether or not it's the left or the right. Are we really going to pretend the right wouldn't use this against the left or that the right wouldn't use it against people that were calling out what they were doing? I mean, it's just that's stupid to argue. You're going to get the left pointing at the right and the right pointing at the left and everybody with intelligence pointing at the entire government. But it simply says to get it done. It says we see it often with Biden's Department of Homeland Security. The disinformation government board wasn't random. Now, here's the first first clip. Take me back to that tweet I showed you. Are you, have you been uh, paid uh, taxpayer dollars by DHS to study Tucker Carlson as a stochastic terrorist? No. Okay. Has that been a feature of your research? Have you researched Tucker Carlson? I mean, informally, my own, for my own edification, I have. Sufficient to your, to your, to to the point that you are willing to say on, on, on Twitter that he's a stochastic terrorist for the Buffalo massacre, right? I'm willing to say it on congressional record. Yes. But you, did, but you haven't researched it to quantify anything or to come up with a statistical relationship. There are, there are research studies that haven't done that. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate your indulgence. Got it. So first point is that he's arguing for his own opinion, of course, as a representative, which matters, even if it's not being public, you know, officially stated that Tucker Carlson, and of course it ends up with Tucker Carlson, of course, right? Because that's the limited hangout, guys. They want you to point at those people because that's how they get you locked back into the two-party paradigm. It's an illusion. Use anybody. The point is simply that somebody who argued things that went against the narrative that they then say were why the Buffalo shooting happened. He even argued, asked, can you prove that? Is there any kind of quantification? No, no. We do their studies. But, you know, the point is that saying things like this lead to things like that. Therefore, he is a terrorist. That's literally the argument being made. And we can see how quickly, if allowed, this will demolish the idea of free speech. Because then, well, you can feel free to say it. You're free to say it. We're also then free to use this arbitrary law to put you in prison for the rest of your life because of your protected speech. Right? What they're doing here is basically jumping around the idea of constitutional rights. They're going, oh, you still have your right. Your rights are still there. Totally. Completely. You have free speech to say whatever you want. But if we then pretend that it caused violence over here, we're going to charge you for that crime. Doesn't, doesn't affect your constitutional rights, does it? It's actually pretty smart when you think about it. They're just basically stepping over the constitutional rights with a loophole and saying that because we claim that that kind of speech, which you're allowed to say, can lead to violence. If it does, you're going to be in trouble. You get that? And that's crazy because at no point does your do your words automatically translate to violence because there's a sentient being on the other side of that that makes their own choices. Here's the next one. 
Continuing the thread, it says Dr. Kurt Braddock, a, an American university professor and recipient of more than 550,000 grants from the DHS to study the spread of disinformation. <laughs> My God, what a dumb thing. Like, think about how obviously that you, if you get paid for that, you're going to study it in the way that they want you to study it. Sort of like the same research scientific direction. It says, we also studied sto uh, stochastic terrorism, which he defines here. This is really interesting. And, and you describe it as, quote, a form of incited terrorism whereby a communicator has access to a platform and big audience. Mm -hmm. When the communicator uses coded language that promotes violence. With coded language. First point. Coded language. How do you know exactly? How, what if I accidentally say the words that you've decided are codes and I didn't mean them that way? You see, it gets abstract. You know, there's what Putin really thinks, wink, wink, like that. He's a he's doing this because we know how he feels, right? This is what they're doing everywhere. What if I did use the code words? How about if I want to use those code words? The point is they don't get to just arbitrarily decide that certain words act, translate to violence. But that's what they're actually doing, that you're using certain words that then trigger people to take action. There's no way you can prove these things. But that doesn't matter to them anymore because we're not in the land of evidence and facts anymore. uses coded language that promotes violence within an audience of millions, at least one is likely to interpret it as a call to arms. And then you go on to say, that's in your quote, but you say you really can't predict who, when, or where, but as a matter of probability, at least one person will view it that way and might act on it. Correct. Um, <clears throat> billion, at least one is likely to interpret it as a call to arms. At least one is likely to interpret it as a call to arms. Think about how crazy that is. So, you, so anything you ever say online if somebody out there interprets it as violence, you just became a terrorist. That applies to just about anything. Or rather, let's put it this way, any generally even mildly contentious political topic. Think about how alarming that is. Or, I mean, let, let's say you believe in this and you think it's a smart thing to do. Because you believe they want to do the right thing. Are we going to pretend that there would never be a potential politician that would abuse that or a policeman or a government official that would abuse that? Because God knows they've never done that before. This is alarming. And I don't know how any American would think this makes sense. Next one says, this is not inciting language as defined in the U.S. code, mind you. This is the craziest part to me. They acknowledge right here it's not a crime. Right? That's what they're trying to change, you understand. This is the same thing we saw like the DHS hearing where I played for you often where we see it building. We just know how to stop it. One of the things they argued in that hearing was that, well, they know how to, you know, under to basically secretly operate just underneath the law. So it's not breaking the law, but we know they've found a way to circumvent. Our so they're not breaking the law. So what are you doing? Your argument is that they're a threat, but they're not breaking the law. So what you're arguing is to alter the law to make them actually to, to alter to change to what they're doing to make it a crime. Think about that. It's like you stop at a stop sign, and suddenly the cop runs up and puts the line behind you. Oh, the ticket. You just got a ticket. The stop sign's behind you. You passed it. But wait a minute. I already stopped. That's the equivalent to what they're doing. They're trying to move the law so what you do now that's not illegal suddenly becomes illegal because they go, because they know, wink, wink, what you really mean. Subjective. Childish. Listen to what he says. But I want to distinguish is stochastic terrorism isn't illegal. Just because the term terrorism isn't doesn't mean that it's illegal. Incitement is illegal. That doesn't mean the phenomena doesn't exist. Well, I, but I want to. Right. So, so how do you then know that they're doing that? 
Like, doesn't their intention matter? In fact, that's all that matters in this context. But apparently they're the only arbiters of the intention, right? They're the only ones that get to dictate whether or not you have intent to do that. Based on what exactly? Their psychic ability? The intent is all that matters in this conversation. That's all he's saying. Well, because it's not illegal. My God, I just, I can't get past how alarming this is that this is, these are people in the U.S. government right now aggressively pushing for this. He goes on to say, so who would qualify as a stochastic terrorist? It says President Trump and his first target. That's what he says. Okay. So then you go on in, in that tweet thread and you, and you say in one that President Trump is a stochastic terrorist with respect to the January 6th riot at the Capitol, right? Correct. Okay. Right. So explain, point out for me anywhere. And this is the point. They love to try to make these abstract comments to be, again, wink, wink, here's what Trump actually meant. But that's not the point. Prove to me or show to me one example anywhere where he told people to go in the Capitol, where he told people to be violent. In fact, he said the exact opposite many times. And I am no fan of Donald Trump. I am constantly calling out how what an illusion that was and what a problem all of this is, both sides of the broken paradigm. But I fight for the truth. And the honest truth is that that was a ridiculous psyop that was not, that didn't pan out for them. And the bottom line is you're calling him a terrorist because you argue that his, like what, lack of certain things or the op, the, the absence of saying not to do something. I mean, this is ridiculous. And you know it is. I don't even know how this would ever translate into a court of law unless the very system that it's operating within is broken itself. But it says Fox News, Tucker Carlson for another. Here he's calling Tucker a terrorist. It says literally just wrote a paragraph about far-right media motivating acts of terrorism by legitimizing, legitimizing conspiracy theories, which, of course, they call, you know, that like the vaccine can hurt people is a conspiracy theory. The fact that there's neo-Nazis in Ukraine is a conspiracy theory. That's what we're talking about. Before I saw the news about Buffalo, I noted Tucker Carlson's normalization of the Great Replacement BS. Now, there's, of course, an argument to be had. I don't agree that that's actually what's happening in the greater context of the political side of that. But is there an overwhelming and ridiculous focus on, right, let's put it this way, is there open, in unjustified racism towards white people today? Of course there is. Now, does that mean there's not racism against black people? No. Whoever said that? The point is, it's obvious right now that we can see this reverse situation happening. Where uh, Let's just take it, one of the most obvious statements made. Black people can't be racist. And if you're white, you are racist no matter what. How stupid is that? That in and of itself is the most racist thing I've ever seen. I should say that. I've seen far more racist things than that. But the point is, it's just incredibly racist to just simply imply that anybody because of their skin color is a certain way. In fact, that's the exact definition of racism. My point is, that's what the general, if you're being honest, an objective conversation about what the great replacement is kind of touching on. But then you get all this gross, ridiculous, political two-party paradigm stuff that makes it the reason that I don't point, you know, that's the point. Nonetheless, the point is simply because he acknowledges these conversations, he's therefore the reason Buffalo happened. Like you can have a discussion about that. You can say, hey, my opinion is this is what happened. But to call it terrorism, to literally say he's a danger to domestic security, that, that in my opinion is the biggest threat we can see. And I don't support Tucker Carlson either. I think he's totally part of the problem. But it goes on to say, he asked Braddock point blank if he thought Tucker Carlson was a, a terrorist. His response, he says, I'm unwilling to say that on congressional record. Again, I think I just, this is the same one I just said. Let me see. And, and you also say that with respect to the 2019 El Paso Walmart mass shooting of people of Hispanic descent, that President Trump was a stochastic terrorist of that event, right? Correct. Among others, yes. Okay. 
So let me say, and then you have a tweet here that says, ends with this. It says, uh, uh, well, let me hold up. It says, um, uh, Carlson is a danger to U.S. domestic security. And you're talking about Tucker Carlson, right? I am. And you say, and, and your conclusion is that Tucker Carlson is a terrorist. Stochastic terrorist. I distinguish okay. between an, a, an active terrorist, someone who engages in violence, and a stochastic terrorist as the inciter, not meeting the legal definition for incitement. Okay, Paris. Wait, wait, wait. So you calling him an insider, but he doesn't meet the legal definition for being an insider. This is a person in charge, right? This is a person who is literally investigating disinformation. And so you, you're calling him an insider, even though you literally follow that by saying, but he doesn't meet the definition for being an insider. So we'll, we'll change that very quickly. We'll alter the definition to make sure we meet what we're trying to meet here. The bottom line is, guys, you can call him whatever you want. You can't pretend we have free speech. You can't pretend we've got a free press if this kind of conversation is being held. In And look, understand what I'm saying is you're allowed to talk about these things, but they're not just going, that's what I think. These are people that are pushing for action. They're saying we need to do something about this. We need to change the law because this is what's happening. That's the discussions of the mass shootings and everything else is being focused like this. Don't miss the overlap to the vanilla ISIS conversation we just had. It all focuses on one side of this. They're burning it all down to rebuild it, guys. Don't forget the general point. But this is interesting to me because if you're trying to say we've got a free press, yet you're going, that guy's terrorism because he says political talking points I don't agree with, well, then you're lying. We don't have a free press. And we should know that by now as we get censored constantly. But it says, if, if asked if Joe Biden commits comments predicting a mini-revolution, should SCOTUS overturn Roe versus Wade, especially in light of the assassination attempt on Kavanaugh, was stochastic terrorism he had quite a different response. Is, uh, is uh, Joe Biden, after the attempt or the attempt on Kavanaugh's life, said last said immediately that evening that if, that uh, went on late late night comedy and predicted a mini revolution as the Supreme Court overturns Roe? Is President Biden a stochastic terrorist? I wouldn't think that makes the line. No. How is that any different? Like, what inconsistent logic? Like, he must feel stupid for saying that. Like, there's no, it's just because he believes one is and one isn't. That's it. It's subjective. Everything is subjective today, it seems. If you're out there going, a mini revolution will happen. Wouldn't, so, can't you argue that somebody would be like, oh, okay, let's revolt. Let's revolt. Let's go through the streets and revolt. It's a revolution. Biden said, didn't you hear? And then that, that becomes violence. That person then goes and shoots somebody. How would you not argue that's exactly the same thing? Especially when Trump didn't say, let's revolt to January 6th. Let's have a mini revolution in the Capitol. None of that happened. They just pretend that what he said meant certain things, even though it's pretty clear it's not what he meant. But here's Biden verbatim saying mini revolution, but that doesn't count though. Pretty, pretty pathetic. Paints a picture of the intolerance and blah, 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 stochastic terrorism. He says he's quite, the point we keep saying, he says the quiet part out loud. Now, here's the interesting part. The regime is coming for conservatives. I agree with that. But I do not want us to take this as a two-party paradigm argument. I'm not a conservative, but they'll sure as hell call me that if they'd like to include me in shutting us down, in arresting us, in whatever else they want to do. That's what we're looking at. And, and using as a scapegoat any Republican out there, conservative or anything else, that might take the bait on what they're trying to create right here. And I think they are too smart for that. I think most Americans are, left or right. And they saw what happened on January 6th, and that's why they didn't take the bait. They didn't come with guns. They were the, the, only, the only unarmed insurrection in history, right? No weapons were there on their side, but it was an insurrection still. The point is that they're going to push this nonetheless.
Now, what does it say in this definition again? Let's go back to it. What does stochastic terrorism mean? Well, in the public, it says it is the public demonization of a person or group resulting in the incitement of an act of violence, which is statistically probable, but whose specifics cannot be predicted. <laughs> That's really flimsy. But nonetheless, you can't claim that Trump is that then. You can't even claim Tucker is that. In no way did they publicly demonize a specific person or group which then translates into an incitement of violence in regard to the group that it was attacked. You can't pretend that they're demonizing racial minorities in the context of their conversation, or you could pretend that. That's not what was happening. But this is my point. It gets into what they say they're doing, not what they actually said, not what they actually did, but what they mean behind it. And maybe they do, but you can't prove that. And probably I can prove plenty of um, instances where they say that, and it's not the case. A hundred of them are on my show every day. Here's what Ryan really meant. Wink, wink. Not true, but whatever. The, the word stochastic in everyday language means random. So all they're basically saying is random terrorism. Violence motivated by ideology, which is terrorism. Which, by the way, is literally everything the U.S. government does around the world. Violence motivated by ideology. Their ideologies, they're fighting for freedom. Or that's what they claim when really their ideology is conquering. Same with the other Western governments on their side, or with Saudi Arabia, or with Israel, or all the same ones and the same agenda. Here's the idea behind stochastic terrorism. A leader organization uses rhetoric in a mass media, in the, ma- in the media against a group of people. So against a group of people. That's, imp- that's very important, obviously. So show me where we were focusing on a group of people, or any of the examples he made. There's this rhetoric, that's the point again, that they pretend that's what he meant behind what he said. This rhetoric, while hostile or hateful, doesn't explicitly tell someone to carry out acts of violence against that group. So there you go, right there, that's crazy. You see, Don't you have a right to express your thoughts? You could maybe argue if you said, go out there and shoot that person, and then they did, that maybe you have some culpability there. Even then, there's a fine line in free speech. But the point is that that's not what's happening. It says, but a person feeling threatened is motivated to do so as a result. So people who make their own choices somewhere else because of something you said at one point makes you a terrorist. That individual act of political violence can't be predicted as such. That's even more abstract. But that violence will happen is much more probable thanks to the rhetoric. Wow. This rhetoric is thus called stochastic terrorism because of the way it incites random violence. This sounds like a completely made up idea to create the argument that you're a terrorist even though you're really not. Absolutely incredible. All of this is chipping away constantly at your rights. Which, by the way, has been happening for a long time. Here's an article from Jay, uh, from the Free Thought Project from a while back. Immigration crackdown violating rights of millions of innocent citizens at the Constitution free zones. Remember this conversation? We've had this many times. The reason I bring it up is because it was just acknowledged again. It was just solidified, in fact. And based on a tweet I'll show you at the end from Steve, Slow Newsday, that it's gotten worse. But this line, in case you haven't seen this, the orange you're looking at here, that's called, that's a constitution-free zone. That's the border zone they set up where your constitutional rights are not valid. And I'll, I'll show you right on the ASLU website. The point is that this is a zone where they argue because of the border that we have to create the situation. Well, guys, there's entire states that exist in this. How is that constitutional? The entire state of Maine exists in this border zone. And yet we're supposed to pretend like everybody in Maine doesn't have constitutional rights? That's crazy. We've written about this many times. New York's constitution-free zone leading to warrantless bus searches and detentions. Here's another one. Papers, please. Daily citizenship checks on buses across Maine highlight constitution-free zone. 
Here's another one. Customs and Border Protection clarifies you have no rights while traveling. That's a, that was the Customs and Border Control. That is January 15, 2018. Here's the current part of this conversation. This is posted on, where was it? Oh, actually, the next one's the most current. This is just to acknowledge the same point. This is from the ACLU. Nearly two out of three people in the United States, 66% of the entire country exists in this constitution-free zone. You still pretend we live in a free country? Whatever that means. The Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution protects Americans from random and arbitrary stops and searches. According to the government, however, these basic constitutional principles do not apply at the borders. Federal authorities do not need a warrant or even suspicion of wrongdoing to justify conducting what courts have called, what federal courts have called a routine search, such as searching luggage or a vehicle. So your rights don't apply. Let's make, just don't miss that obvious point. If they so choose, they can break your rights, violate your rights, your inalienable rights, because they've dictated a border zone where they don't have to. That is your government circumventing your rights, period. That's your government violating its oath to you. That's your government violating the Constitution. Because of fill in the blank. Roughly two-thirds of the United States population lives in that zone. Can, can, this is the craziest part to me. Connecticut, Delaware, Florida, Hawaii, Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Rhode Island, and Vermont lie entirely or almost entirely within that area. So make sure you don't live in those areas. Right? If you think about that, you're living in a state where they could at any point just search your home because of the argument that you live within this zone. That's not hyperbole. That's why the ACLU, ACLU has been pointing this out for a long time. But of course, nobody cares. Here's the point of why we're talking about this today. This is from June 8, 2022. Supreme Court makes federal officials absolutely immunized, interesting choice of word, from personal lawsuits. So now, when they don't have to acknowledge your rights, and there's been lots of lawsuits because of that, because it's wildly unconstitutional, now they just go, well, too bad, now you can't even sue them. Freedom. Right? As long as we force into law the unconstitutional reality, well, then it's okay, then, right? New rulings restrict when individuals can sue federal personnel for misconduct. It says the Supreme Court on Wednesday made it even more difficult, which was already almost impossible, for U.S. citizens to bring lawsuits against federal employees who violate their constitutional rights, narrowing the already limited path to do so. So, violating the, the, the foundational concept of this country, and we just go, now nah, you can't even go after them for that. Shouldn't that be the only thing that matters? In Egbert versus Buell, the conservative majority, so hear that, by the way, the conservative majority on this court in the Supreme Court ruled against your constitutional rights. Wake up, guys. We don't live in a two-party system. The conservative majority on the court ruled an individual business owner did not have cause to bring an action seeking damages against a federal agent accused of physically assaulting him. The ruling set a broad precedent that legal experts said would make it virtually impossible to sue federal officials. Look at that. Now, by the way, that will translate, if they want it to, the way the court system works, into any federal officials in certain situations. This case involved Richard Buell, who owns a Smuggler's Inn, a bed and breakfast near the U.S.-Canada border in Washington. This kind of creeped me out, by the way. Buell worked as an informant. For the custom and borders protection. Another, by the way, side point about how they don't care about you, like the Guaido situation. This guy was working for them, and the moment that he went afoul of them, they assaulted him. 
That's what happens. They don't care about you. You're a useful tool. But the point is, he worked as an informant for them. And guess what he did? Occasionally, occasionally facilitating transportation and lodging for undocumented immigrants, so for immigrants, basically, and subsequently reporting them to federal officials. So pretending to be their friend, helping people in a struggling situation, and then calling the police. Sounds like a great person. In 2014, a scout... Now, by the way, I'm not arguing that people aren't... There's, there's a, such a thing as, an undo, as people who are here illegally. That matters, right? The, same, the, the, the laws are in place. You could argue the laws shouldn't be there and argue whether they're constitutional. There's points to be made there. But nonetheless, it's interesting. This person, like as a human being, don't we recognize that people that are coming across the border in a lot of ways are people that are struggling from other situations? I mean, there's so many ways to look at it. But anyway, the point is, in 2014, a scuffle took place between Buell and a Border Patrol agent, Eric Egbert. Buell had informed Egbert of a potential undocumented immigrant arriving at his inn, but Buell resisted when Egbert came to investigate and the agent allegedly pushed the inn order to the ground. Egbert allegedly then reported Buell to the Washington Department of Licensing for his smuggler license plate. So so get this. So he's working with him this entire time as an informant to help him fight these, you know, arrest immigrants. And the moment he pushes back, he pushes him to the ground and then tries to arrest him for being a smuggler. <laughs> Think about that. What about all the work you did helping him do this? Suddenly he goes afoul one moment and now he's going to get arrested. Yeah. Make sure you work for the U.S. government, guys. It's Nothing is sacred. But the point is he goes on to make clear that he basically went on to uh, uh, report him for his smuggler license plate and to the IRS, which actually then audited his entire business. Buell eventually sued Egbert for a Fourth Amendment excessive use of force violation and a First Amendment unlawful retention of uh, retaliation violation. I just can't get past how just ridiculous that is. Why anybody would ever work with the U.S. government when their track record is so damn obvious is beyond me. But it says, in the majority opinion written by the Justice Clarence Thomas, the court said, interfering with the conduct of Border Patrol agents by allowing claims of constitutional violations to proceed would damage national security, and the court system is not equipped to assess damages against federal personnel. That's Justice Clarence Thomas, a Republican. You know, supposed to be the constitutional side, right? Literally ruling that simply the the, the ability to create the process, even the investigation into whether or not they violated your rights, would damage national security. Can't allow frivolous. Who says they're frivolous? I say that because you you dig into this further. That's ultimately the argument, right? We can't just allow people just to... Like, the argument is that people just start laying out claims against federal agents because they don't like what happened. Well, sure, that's certainly possible, but you you don't remove people's rights because of what could happen. You deal with the situation. They're ruling that allowing claims of constitutional violations, which clearly happen to simply proceed in any context, would damage national security because, well, the Border Patrol is important. That's a political... That's a political side over trumping the Constitution. The agency denied Buell's claim and took no action against the agent that assaulted him. Border Patrol officers, no matter what they're doing, aren't going to be held accountable under this ruling. It has made it even harder to hold officers accountable for violations of the Constitution. This This is the director of the Center for Rights and Justice at the University School of Law in Carranzo not some random person. In a concurring opinion, Justice Neil Gorsh, another Republican, said the majority should have gone further than that and overturned the Bivens precedent altogether. 
which allows them to do this anyway. The court will never be positioned to weigh another whether a plaintiff has a cause of action against a federal official, and by leaving the door ajar, the court is creating a false hope for future litigants. His point is simply that because we already ruled this way, it's never going to be possible for them to do this, so let's just go all the way. Seriously? These people, their only job is justice. They're supposed to be upholding the Constitution. Their ruling is that we are not allowing citizens to levy claims, uh, 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 petition the government for abuse, to say that these people assaulted me. I mean, think about how crazy this can get. What if one of these Border Patrol agents raped somebody on the, on the road? You're not allowed to come to the Constitution. You don't have to say, yeah, but my, my rights were violated. Sorry, that impedes national security. This makes me sick. You know how this will be abused. And guess what? You just gave these border agents license to do whatever they want. In her dissent, Justice Sonia Sotomayor said that new precedent created the majority essentially already overturned Bivens. That's what that's what Gersh was saying in the reverse. It is it, it, as it strips those who suffer injuries at the hands of federal officers an important remedy. We need this because you know it can be abused. She added that the claim of national security was sheer hyperbole and the case at its core concerned a physical assault by a federal officer against a U.S. citizen on U.S. soil. Now, the point should be that we don't know that that's the case. We should be able to see this come to fruition as an actual uh, as due process, because that is your right. Inalienable shall not be infringed unless the conservative rule says so. It says, absent intervention by Congress, the Border Patrol agents are now absolutely immunized from liability, no matter how egregious their conduct. It says, it would be great if federal officers did not violate the Constitution, but that's not the case. Federal officers violate the Constitution all the time. But now, they're politically protected. And this is somebody just pointing this out. Uh, oh, uh, oh, this wasn't necessary. Oh, this it says in a 6-3 vote, the Supreme Court ruled that border agents ban constitutionally enter a person's home without a warrant and assault them and federal courts are powerless to do anything about it. I believe this was the same discussion. Yeah, Egbert versus Buell. And the point he's making here is that this is inside this constitution-free zone. So if you just remove people's right to petition the government for this crime to say these border agents abused me, then what's to stop them from literally breaking in your home within that border zone and saying we have a right to because we thought there were people inside? It, what are you going to do then? Now, you, you would argue that there would be some kind of a rational discussion, but geez, I'd li- I would, I'd feel bad for you if you think anything's rational coming from the government today. This will be abused. This is crazy. This is the removal of your rights, plain and simple. And as Slow News Day pointed out, to add to that border zone, think about this. He says, you don't live in a con- the country you think you do. Guess what? When you add in international airports, federal land, other versions of this that create situations where the government calls it protected area, that is what you're looking at. You're looking at a a country that's almost entirely constitution free because in these border areas, it's not that this is the same point. That blows me away. I guess we should be moving to uh, Kansas or Oklahoma. I mean, or hey, Tennessee or Nashville or yeah, exactly. The bottom line, though, is that this is this is this is not what is the illusion that we spin for ourselves. And it's been happening for a long time. Now, I want to go over a couple more interesting points here in regard to where this has already been happening. This is something somebody sent me from New York Times. Secret emergency orders may include focus on Internet. New files show. So talking about the removal of your rights all this time, this goes back a while. 
And now we're seeing the real world example of something where they may choose to push this forward because of what you do, because of how you resist what they do. Who knows how this could come back, come to pass. But what the, the only point is that there are things that you get, you, you should know about. You're supposed to be the ruling, you know, the living that they're supposed to be representing what you believe, right? Is that the illusion we tell ourselves? But yet there's an entire function behind everything that we don't ever get to see. And it's not just this one point. There's an entire shadow government since Reagan's administration that operates without your knowledge. They've admitted this many times. Here is secret orders about what they can do to you should they decide to and claim it's an emergency. It goes, this is from May 26, 2022. Newly disclosed documents have shed a crack of light on secret executive branch plans for apocalyptic scenarios, like after a nuclear attack or, say, a bio-attack or, say, anything else they want to justify as a serious problem today, when the president may activate wartime powers for national security emergencies. Until now, public knowledge... And here's, here's something to add right at the beginning. What if it's already happened? We already saw what the hell just went down with COVID-19 that was wildly off the rails. What else is open now? Maybe they already opened these powers and we just haven't seen the extent of it yet. It goes on to say, until now, public knowledge of what the government put into those classified directives, which invoke emergency and wartime powers granted by Congress and otherwise claimed by presidents, has been limited to declassified descriptions of those deployed in the early Cold War. In that era, they include steps like imposing martial law, rounding up people deemed dangerous, and censoring news from abroad or locally. Rounding up people deemed dangerous, that's the continuity of government discussion I was just pointing out with Reagan, where at the time there were thousands of people, journalists, average people, activists, who were on that list. That was proven. God only knows how big that list is now, and I can almost promise you people like us are on that list. Should they decide to, they will round you up to make sure that they have control. It says, it has not been clear what is in the modern directives, known as presidential emergency action documents, because under administrations of both parties, none have been made public or shown to Congress. Two-party illusion. But the newly disclosed documents, which relate to George W. Bush administration's efforts to revise the draft orders after September 11th, offers clues. So as, far as 2011, or excuse me, 2001, it was still there and they were revising it. And you can see examples of both Trump and Biden acknowledging its presence. So it's still there. Several of the files provided to the New York Times by the Brennan Center for Justice show that the Bush era effort partly focused on a law that permits the president to take over or shut down communication networks in wartime, like the internet. That suggests the government may have developed or revised such an order in light of the time of the internet. Now, it says the bottom line is that these documents leave no doubt that the post-9-11 emergency actions documents have direct and significant implications for American civil liberties. And yet, there is zero oversight by Congress, and that's unacceptable. To the to the acknowledgement of nobody, yeah, it's, it's unacceptable. Acceptable, acceptable. Nobody cares. Like yelling into a chasm, right? We can't allow that. As nothing happens, right? It's, like, it's frustrating. Yes, obviously that's unacceptable. Obviously that's unconstitutional. But what? I mean, really think about how frustrating that is. They don't care about your rights or law if that's what's going on. They don't just get to go well because narrative because we deem this threat. We're supposed to be the people making these choices. At some point along the line, that just stopped being the case, if it ever was. The documents show that later versions extended from one category to seven, 
That's alarming. Although their topics remain secret and fall within the jurisdiction of agencies with different areas of focus. The newly disclosed documents show that there were 48 of the directives when the Bush administration took over. And by 2008, that number had grown to 56. Alarmingly so, Vice President Dick Cheney's office was involved in reviewing and allow, clearing, allowing the orders. Dick Cheney, of all people. My God, that's alarming to hear. The Brennan Center for Justice, which has gathered materials about the presidential emergency action documents, obtained the files under the Freedom of Information Act from the Bush Presidential Library. The disclosures constituted about 500 pages, while about 6,000 more of those pages were withheld as classified. The illusion of the Freedom of Information Act, right? Now, it goes on to say, in the 1950s and 60s, versions of the draft included directives imposing versions of martial law, censoring information crossing the, crossing the border, and suspending court hearings for detained people. So, in, suspending your rights in the middle of an emergency. Does that sound relevant and familiar? Didn't we literally just see that happen? We did. That was COVID-19. Your rights were on pause, right? Even though that's literally not possible. Another early emergency action order from the 1950s was ready to create military zones prohibiting certain categories of people. Now that, of course, is, you know, what they pretend is from an, an old time, a bygone era. The directive echoed how the government barred Japanese and Japanese Americans from large swaths of the West Coast during World War II, leading to their internment camps. You know, that thing we don't like to talk about. The point is, we know we can all acknowledge, like, let's say that happened right now. Are we really going to pretend with the kind of sentiment today that they wouldn't round up Russians that are in this country because of the national security threat? You know that's the case. We love to pretend like we're a different country now, but we're not. Or rather, I should say more specifically, they're not. They're the same maniacal entity they always have been, playing on your desire for good. Now, it says others order from that era, other orders from that era included a declaration that a state of war existed, a directive to arrange for reconvening Congress at a secure site, and the creation of an agency empowered to impose sweeping controls over the economy. I wonder if these things are already in place already happened. That agency reporting to the president could enact controls like requisitioning private property and allocating materials, imposing wage, price, and rent controls, rationing, and settling labor disputes. So nothing means anything. They can do whatever they want, anytime they want, as long as they want, as long as they argue that we're in this state of emergency. That is pretty alarming. Why, why, aren't, why isn't Congress freaking out about this? Because they don't care. Now, this gets even more alarming when you step into the idea of the secret military inside the United States. Now, this sort of is on the conversation of the continuity of government point, but this is from 2021 from Newsweek. Exclusive, inside the military's secret undercover army. This should not be allowed. It is. That's alarming. The largest undercover force the world has ever known is the one created by the Pentagon over the last decade. Now, you need to think about this in the context of Ukraine, what they're doing to you in this country, the kind of discussions on social media we're having. It says some 60,000 people now belong to this secret army, many working under masked identities and in low profile, all part of a broad program called Signature Reduction. The force, more than 10 times the size of clandestine elements of the CIA, which, you know, who knows if that's even true, carries out domestic and foreign assignments, both in military uniforms and under civilian cover. 
I mean, think about anything you want to think about. That could be shootings. That could be, you know, protests. I mean, this could be literally everywhere. 60,000 people scattered across the country in civilian cover. You would have no idea. And military uniforms and in real life and online. Sometimes hiding in private businesses and consultancies. Some of them household name companies. Well, gee, like which ones? You mean like Apple, Google, Facebook, Twitter? Who knows, guys? The point is they're online. So are we really going to pretend like those bots don't exist? The unprecedented shift has placed an ever greater number of soldiers, civilians, and contractors working under false identities. Everything's an illusion, guys. That's the point. It's not even a secret. We just need to acknowledge that that's the reality today. Civilian soldiers and contractors working under false identities, partly as a neutral result, a natural result in the growth of secret special forces. That's alarming, but also as an intentional response to the challenges of traveling and operating in an increasingly transparent world. Yeah, God forbid we should be transparent, right? The explosion of Pentagon cyber warfare, or the very thing that we never acknowledge as if it doesn't exist, and every time anything happens, we blame on Russia, Iran, China. Where's the explosion of Pentagon cyber warfare? I don't see it. That's because you do see it. It's everything they point at. Moreover, has led to thousands of spies who carry out their day-to-day work in various made-up personas. The very type of nefarious operations the United States decries when Russia and China do the same. Amazing that we can get some honest points squeaking through the corporate media. It's on lockdown today, it would seem. But think about what they're saying. That's an obvious fair point. Why is it okay when they do it? They don't seem to be carrying out any more honest actions. In fact, they're doing some pretty terrible things constantly around the world under the guise of freedom. But simply the point is they, they point at what they're doing. You can prove this. They point over there and say, they just did that. They don't really, I've never seen them prove it anymore. And act like because they did it, that's the, the very point. That they're bad people because they did A, Y, X, Y, and Z. But you're over here doing the exact same thing. Hypocr- hypocrisy, double standards everywhere. Newsweek's exclusive report on the secret world is the result of a two-year investigation involving the examination of over 600 resumes and over 100,000 job postings, dozens of Freedom of Information Act requests, and scores of interviews with participants and defense decision makers. What emerges is a window into not just a little-known sector of the American military, but also a completely unregulated practice. No one knows the program's total size, and the explosion of signature reduction has never been examined for its impact on military policies and culture. That could be like everything we're watching today, guys. Congress has never held a hearing on the subject. I wonder why. And yet the military developing this gigantic clandestine force challenges U.S. laws, the Geneva Conventions, the Code of Military Conduct, and basic accountability. But, you know, freedom and national security. So shut up. Right? Because we care, right? Come on. I just can't. It, it's, it, it's party politics that allow these conversations to even resemble something that makes sense. Now, to finish this off, which I'll probably skim over the last one. I want to take time on this. Well, I, as much time as I was going to. This is an interesting report that I'm going to focus on more as we go forward. America's 5G era, balancing big data and privacy. Fifth generation wireless networking will increase the scale of wireless networks by an order of magnitude or more. So as we're watching this 
secret army or we're acknowledging that it's presence or acknowledging our lack of constitutional rights and, and, and acknowledging the world they're forcing us into with the great reset and technocratic the control and everything we're talking about, which for those that sneer at that point, it's embarrassing because they're openly saying that's what they're doing. It's really ridiculous for those people. But the point is, this is what is happening right now. In fact, it's what's been happening since Trump was in, 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 in his administration was there as this video, by the way, this is just the one that's still present on BitChute, got over a million views before they censored it. The point was not that I was saying anything other than the bill was signed while we were distracted what was going on with coronavirus. And that's a fact. Trump signed a bill that was basically allowing sweeping 5G infrastructure while we weren't paying attention. Well, yeah, conservatives, that should be alarming to everybody. The point is they censored this aggressively and it went away. I'll make a point about that in a minute in regard to their fact checks about exactly, exactly my video. Isn't that funny? Except they don't cite my video. I, I think it's pathetic. But what they're talking about here is what this will do in regard to their data and privacy, increasing the scale of this entire project. Perhaps nothing exemplifies the future of the 5G era, they say, more than the ubiquitous surveillance that is gathering more and more diverse data on people. I don't know why this is something we're allowing. Because some argument that we, at some phantom majority, argues that we care more about security of national security and safety than we do about our rights, nobody thinks that way in the majority. The majority of Americans have always stood by the Constitution. That's why the majority doesn't want war. And the majority wants to see good in the government. That's why we, they pretend to be good. They are lying to you about what they pretend the majority wants. Ubiquitous surveillance is that's why they had to lie about that in the very beginning. Oh no, the NSA is not spying on you. You're a conspiracy theorist. Oh, but now they are, but it's for your best interest, right? <clears throat> it says even before the 5G era, data were seen as a source of new economic value. That's that's what that's what Corbett's been telling you. Data is the new oil. It is a wild west gold rush oil boom. They are aggressively scooping up your data. That's what Elon Musk is arguably going to do with Twitter, as he basically said. Oh, on that quick note, I saw that Project Veritas did a, a secret show of what Musk was saying. I, I Come on, guys. I think that's ridiculous. Let's be real. So Project Veritas puts out a thing where Musk is saying, I care about free speech, and all I want is for this to be fair and everyone to be equitable. It's like, okay, you got him, didn't you? Like, what's that supposed to be? Like, so you're trying to prove that he said what he, like, that's what he says outwardly. So how is that a Project Veritas episode to prove that he's saying what he says he's trying to do? That feels very partisan to me, which is exactly what I would expect from a partisan outlet. Not to say that Project Veritas hasn't done some great work in exposing things on, a, on one side of the paradigm. I just think it's frustrating to see that. No, maybe it's true. Maybe he does believe that. I haven't found, I haven't been, have yet to see that flesh out, but I just am very skeptical about anything like that. Anyway, back to the point. At the same time, the gathering and use of data have already raised privacy concerns, both in the United States and Europe. Here are the key findings before we read one of the main pages here. As, as the volume, variety, and velocity of data gathered increased dramatically because of 5G. Now, are we going to pretend that's because they want your internet to be faster or because they want to spy on you more? Both the value and the risk are likely to increase as well as well as the fact that they need 5G for a lot of the things they're doing. You know, like the smart cities, the digital IDs and concurrency and vaccine passport, the infrastructure, social credit. They need it for all of this stuff. It's not about you. That's how they pretend. It's, it's about you and your safety and you're having faster internet and being able to play on the metaverse. It's what it's all about, right? 
In the fifth generation wireless era, the government could expand and automate its surveillance for infectious disease monitoring. Look at that. And translate that surveillance into controls of day-to-day activity. That's alarming. Now, did we vote on this? Do they even care if it's safe? I'll prove that's not true. Doesn't matter, though. It's already happening. It happened under Trump. In the 5G era, law enforcement has more information than ever before. Sure makes you feel safe, doesn't it? Especially when they're seemingly enforcing as opposed to securing and, and serving and protecting, which can be, it can use fuse together a lot more quickly. The 5G era with increased bandwidth for more connected devices will likely continue the trend of collection and utilization of personal data by firms, both large and small, and could contribute to a ubiquitous mobile surveillance environment. Yay, sounds fun, doesn't it? Going forward, down here it discusses some interesting things. Containing COVID-19 in China. Consider the case of Chinese surveillance applied to COVID-19 tracking. Or anywhere else that happened, the United States, Canada, you know, I'll show you next. In 2020, people under quarantine were required to remain in their homes until they received permission to leave. Which happened in Australia and plenty of other places, by the way. If they left early or congregated outside their homes, human teams monitoring public surveillance cameras would order them to disperse or return home via their address systems, and so on. To address, to access public transportation or buildings, every traveler is required to show other people their COVID code. But it says they're smart on their smartphone. But in the, in the 4G era, the smartphone provides only the COVID code. However, in the 5G era, China could expand and automate its surveillance and translate that surveillance into controls of day-to-day activity. Cameras facing a home's doorway could communicate to an automated control center and face and gate of anyone leaving home. Right, that's where this is what they're building out. Artificial intelligence algorithms could identify the person leaving and check their COVID code, radio frequency identification, RFID devices in your doorframe or your hand or your body or all the things they're talking about. If the code were read, the center would call the text and subject's phone and in order to return home. You can see how this becomes invasive, becomes instantaneous. And this is very surface level. Not even getting into the real concerns of 5G, which I'll, I'll, I'll point to Derek's previous work. but. The point here is public doxing by anonymous accusers. It also goes on to say artificial intelligence agencies performing this check would confirm that the person holding the smartphone was the same person left home, automatically adjust their code downward, lowest status of anyone whom they were judged to have come in. So social credit. But public doxing of anonymous accusers. Imagine taking a bicycle ride in Florida Maryland or any other city, town, or along other country lanes in the United States today. Just you and your smartphone and maybe a wearable device with a fitness app. A man on your route is seen behaving badly and maybe even criminally. Perhaps he assaults someone or breaks into a house or, you know, just does something you think looks suspicious. A passerby takes pictures of the culprit and sends them to local law enforcement, which then tweets it out to all these followers. Basically, the point is, it says, with uh, perhaps a bit of time and social media uh, savvy, they come up with a name. But the point is, with today, in the 5G era, local law enforcement has more information, which it can fuse together a lot more quickly. So they can use these things to then basically triangulate. The point is, this can be argued in a way that makes it seem like you're going to be more secure. But are we going to pretend like this won't be abused? In a situation where you would say, don't take your injection, let's say you don't do the right things in regard to climate change, let's say you do things outside of those political discussions. Let's just say you don't act the right way or say the right thing or have the right political view. We're watching this happen in China. And then we're watching people like that discussion we just had where they're saying, oh, where was that? Yeah, right here, where they're saying, well, you know, just, just by 
having this opinion, you're causing violence. Well, there you go. There's your interesting connection. Or suddenly you can just simply say, well, because they have this certain opinion, well, we can cobble together the information that makes them out to be a terrorist. This is alarming stuff. But the point is this documentation goes through the idea of ubiquitous surveillance, using your data, whether you wanted to or not, to constantly surveil you and your life and everything that you do through your smartphone, through your smart devices, through your smart house, through your smart car, to your smart life. Read it for yourself. This is alarming. And if you want to go further than that, which we will, the idea is this infrastructure has already been built or being built, regardless of what you think, and that it's going to be dangerous. Where was it? Here, now I'm getting ahead of myself. Here is one of the documents I pointed out. Great risk for European Union, U.S. international health, compelling evidence for eight distinct types of great harm caused by EMF exposure. Very important from PhDs and scientists pointing out all of these very real issues that this kind of even low versions of this can cause for people. And you know what? They don't care to know, which is exactly why they chose not to do studies on it, which I've played many times. How much money has the industry committed to supporting additional independent research? And we're talking about research on the biological effects of this new technology. There are no industry-backed studies, to my knowledge, right now. So, essentially, the answer to my question, how much money? Zero. Uh, I can only follow up with you, Senator. To my knowledge, there's no active studies being backed by industry today. Anybody else know of industry commitments to, to back research, fund it, support it, to ascertain scientifically the health effect. Well, I'm not aware of any. So there really is no research ongoing. We're kind of blind blind here so far as health and safety is concerned. Thank you, Mr. Wow. I can't, I mean, it's just so incredible. Every time I watch that, I'm just blown away because there's so much interest in the direction that no, they just don't care as long as you don't notice they're doing that. Here's one of Derek's articles about one of the recent studies we did, which got us, this is one of the shows that got us kicked off of YouTube, or one of the different censorship groups, incidences. Does a newly published study prove the 5G COVID-19 connection? Now, he goes through this himself. I did a show on it, and that's one of the things that got us kicked off. Study finds, all I said was COVID-5G correlation, which is what it did. It's peer-reviewed, and the study very clearly finds that what you see happening from COVID-19 adverse events that you can prove weirdly correlate almost exactly with the things you would see from 5G technology. Now, you could dive into it for yourself. Here's the show, Derek's discussion of it. Here's the article, right? Here's an entire breakdown of the risks in general. All of this is there, but we're pushing this out anyway. It's, it's, it's quite incredible, actually. Now, the point here is that this is what they tried to do to fact check it. Oh, mostly false, huh? What's mostly false about it? 5G law was passed while everyone was distracted. Well, that's what happened. Trump very clearly did do this. That was obviously, and they'll say that right in this supposed fact check. <laughs> here's, what, here's why they call it mostly false, though. Because instead of acknowledging what this is coming from, which is my work, because that's the only title you'll find out there, they seek out and find one, as I keep showing you, one Facebook post that got 100, there are 314 shares, 89 likes. You know, it's pretty good for Facebook, but it's not a bunch of reach that simply 
pointed at my work and then just went on to make a bunch of comments and, and then just list off these things. But they point at this stuff. Children had to be out of schools for covert installation. That's how they sidestep it. So what's the argument? That there was not law that was passed while COVID was happening? No. They argue that what they say in this Facebook post was not accurate, therefore mostly false. But the people that don't read it will look at the headline and say 5G law passed while it was distracted, mostly false, and move along. Title skimmers, we call them, because they'll believe, no, there was no 5G law passed, you conspiracy theorists. Well, yeah, there really was. So by fact-checking this title, they're fact-checking that the Facebook post that used that title added things on that weren't actually true. How pathetic. I mean, how do they even pretend the people writing this must feel stupid? But the point is very clear that, yes, this did happen. Watch it for yourself. And it's rolling out. Now, to finish this last part off of 5G, I want to acknowledge some interesting correlations that who knows what actually caused these things. But I find it very interesting that we're seeing a lot of weird things happen along the correlation with the administration of 5G, like random things happen to animals planes falling out of the sky, helicopters crashing, all the sort of things that they would argue would happen as a result of things like this. But I'm not saying that's for sure. They'll sure as hell wink, wink, censor me because I wink, wink, said so. But you know how it goes. Let's play this because they think it's interesting and it could be connected. Here's what we saw from before. Hundreds of birds fall from the sky in Mexico. Just something interesting. Nobody can explain it. I just simply pointing out, positing the idea that it could be connected to something like this. Nonetheless, it's interesting. Oh, yes, there's no words, really. I mean, that's crazy. Dozens of yellow-headed blackbirds were reported dead. The cause of death is unknown. Now, watch it again. You see them, they all fall simultaneously. All of them literally drop out of the sky like some sort of horror movie. Then, I don't know, 30% of them just never fly back up. I don't know what that else would look I don't know what else that would be other than some sort of directed energy. Guys, I mean, you tell me. I'm not saying I know for sure. Certainly possible. Here's another one. Dropping dead out of trees. More than 100 corellas in apparent mass poisoning. It says apparent because they don't know and they admit that. Nobody knows. And the testing didn't show any poison, but they'll love to put that in the title, though, because it can't be anything else. This is June 7th, 2022. All these birds just dropped out of the trees. All over the ground. Hundreds of them. Now, they say that it could be poisoning, but you, as you read through this, they don't know. It says, we're working to determine if the deaths were caused by disease or result of human action. But it's interesting. Dropping out of the trees. Here's another example. Randomly, 300 cows just died over the weekend in Kansas. The rancher has no idea why. For those in the podcast, I mean, this is crazy. They've got them all lined up. It's not like they died in this exact order. But these are, this is, I mean, hundreds. Apparently, it's 10,000, allegedly, according to the Post. But you can see for yourself. All of these cows just died. Same time. Now, of course, the I guess the general argument is that's too hot out there. That's ridiculous. Not only has it been much hotter in this exact location over the years, but it just doesn't make sense. At the end of the day, there's something going on here. Now, what it said right there was, I see, I hate Instagram. You can't move, you can't scroll back and forth to the video. It's so stupid. An autopsy is pending. What they said a moment ago was asking about whether there was some kind of a flu, you know, a virus. But if it was some kind of an illness, why would it affect them all instant at the same time? 
There, that to me is obvious. There's some sort of instance, something happened at one moment. That would are based on my logic and what I can see that would I would be some kind of energy weapon, some kind of energy pulse, some kind of you know, well, how about a, a solar flare? I don't know, something that would cause an instantaneous action like that. The only reason I'm pointing these out is because there's an interesting timing correlation between these things happening and the administration of 5G. But you know what? You could probably find correlations to a hundred other things. Since we're talking about the massive rollout of 5G without the research to find out if it's safe, I thought that might be relevant. Here's another example of something happening simultaneously. First responders in the Imperial County area responding to reports of military aircraft crash in the Palo Verde area of Arizona, California border. Here's a plane crash. First look at the scene in military aircraft. Oh, Imperial, Imperial County, same one. Here's another one. Five Marines dead in military plane crash in California. Here's another one. Three U.S. military aircraft crash in Southern California in one week. Here's another one. Oh, and the, the point was, I'm just including a couple of them. I think some overlap there. The point was, I did. I threw those on at the end because, again, most of these, I'm not saying I can prove these. But you guys know and you've seen it. Feel free to do some background research and send me everyone you can find. There's been a lot. A lot of just random helicopter crashes and plane crashes and all sorts of other things. So here's an alternative opinion in case you think that we're just trying to shove this into 5G. You may not like this opinion either. Idaho doctors co-signed letter demanding the FFA airline ground vaccinated pilots. Now, why would that be? Well, it's right because they are acknowledging a blood clot risk and therefore pilots that are flying with an increased blood clot risk after they were vaccinated is a dangerous thing. Yeah, but we, want, we don't want to talk about that either. So how it could be that they're crashing for any number of reasons. This could be one of them, sort of like the vaccines we talked about. But as always, it's very telling that nobody cares to ask these questions. Now, something somebody sent to me that I will choose to dive in deeper later, the point is simply that this is one of the ways that this 5G technology or any sort of energy-directed technology can be used. Remember, the 5G technology was first initiated, first began as a direct weapon. Right. This was the, this. It's easy to back, backtrack and look it up. It's a directed energy weapon. It was used as a crowd control source. The point here is now it's become used for this, or maybe it was actually still used for. We think it might not, or maybe it's still used for that. Is the point? Nonetheless, here is a Department of Army document from 2006 that acknowledges, because of the Freedom of Information Act, that they do have this capability, that they can direct energy weapon. You know, things like, as the person who said this to me referenced, the Havana syndrome, or the idea of these things that they can direct energy at you and create things like that. And whether they were testing on animals, or it was the action of the rollout, or who, who knows, it's a valid question. And here's the point, they're simply saying, due to your act, we, we, we released the information here, we've completed a mandatory declassification review. Um, it says, you, and then it says at the end that they've, as a result of this review, you've been determined that the Army information no longer warrants security classification protection is releasable to you, and the copy is below. Here's what it says. Bio-effects of selected non-lethal weapons. You know, like a 5G scenario, which is exactly what that can be. And it says laser and other light phenomena, radio frequency directed energy, like a 5G scenario, or oral, oral bio-effects. Now it says the study of electromagnetic fields and their influence on biological systems is increasing rapidly from 2006 to today. Gee, it right on course. Much of this work is taking place because of health concerns. For example, increased concern has arisen regarding the effects of operator exposure to the electromagnetic fields associated with shortwave devices. Well, how much you want to bet that they found out they were super dangerous and then didn't tell us? Because they were clearly looking into it and decided to use it a different way. My, just my thoughts. I know I'm a conspiracy theorist, huh? But let's read through this. A growing perception that microwave irradiation exposure to low-frequency fields can be involved in a wide range of biological interactions. And this is what it gets into. These are the things they're discussing that they've found. 
incapacitating heat. It's on you. Body heating to mimic a fever, well, that's really interesting, isn't it? Is the nature of the RF incapacitation. This is how it was originally designed, guys, to incapacitate you. Which, by the way, it still can. They just decide to turn it up. It suddenly becomes, you, you, you're, you feels like your skin is burning. That's what they're pointing at right there. The objective is to provide heating in a very controlled way so that the body receives nearly uniform heating and no organs are damaged, but it does, it incapacitates you. That's incapacitating effect. It can't get much more obvious than that. That's what we're talking about. Biological, tar- biological target, normal functions, disease state. The temperature of warm-blooded animals like humans remains practically unchanged, although the surrounding temperature may vary considerably. The normal body temperature recorded from the mouth is usually 37 degrees Celsius with a, basically says a variation between, uh, where was it? Uh, strenuous muscular exercise causes a temporary rise in the body. Where was it? Basically, basically creating a situation where you believe you're sick. It says, that whereas a, for, a fevers are not limiting the temperature. I mean, the, the point is, oh, here's an interesting. In prolonged hyperthermia with temperatures over 40, the brain suffers. Like The point is they're acknowledging they can do this with the weapons we're talking about. With, by the way, the energy weapons they claim don't exist and still generally do right now. Mechanisms to produce the desired effects. I mean, how about this? The time to onset is a fun- is the functioning of the power level being used. Carefully monitored, uniform heating could pro- probably take place in between 15 to 30 minutes. Now, you could argue this has context in COVID-19, right? I mean, people have even discussed this obviously as an overlap. So is it not possible? This is exactly what we're talking about, at least in some way, or maybe being used to misrepresent certain things. It's, it, we shouldn't be afraid to ask these questions. Now, I plan to go through this in more depth. But the point is, this has been acknowledged. So why is it so hard to believe that this could be being used? Despite the fact that its impetus was in it as a weapon, which tends to be the case. And then it's taking a step into the future. Here's Nokia back in May 24th, 2022, saying their CEO saying 6G, 6G. Trump was, loves to talk about 6G. We'll be here by 2030. Oh, no coincidence there, you conspiracy theorist. 2030 just happens to be the date they only point out in every conversation, but there's nothing to nothing to see there, but you might not access it via your smartphone. Well, gee, how else would you access it? Let's find out. The CEO, Ludmark, expects 6G mobile networks to be on oper- operation by the end of the decade, but he doesn't. And why? He's pr- the point being, they need that for what they're building for their 2030 agenda and their smart cities and everything else. It's not a secret, guys. But by the end of the decade, but doesn't think the smartphones will be the most common interface. Shockingly enough, speaking on a panel at the World Economic Forum in Davos on Tuesday, Ludmark said he expects 6G to hit the commercial market around, you know, 2030 exactly, which coincides, which coincides roughly with when, when uh, Huawei expects to see a tech, the technology on the market. You know, the overlap with China because they're totally adversarial in this discussion, right? By then, definitely the smartphone as we know it today will not anymore be the most common interface. Many of these things will be built directly into our bodies. Yeah, that was one of the things they discussed at the Davos World Economic Forum discussion. No, that, if you say that on Twitter, you're a conspiracy theorist. But if he says it, he's a, it's a visionary, right? Isn't that crazy? Even though Klaus Schwab says that's literally what we're doing right now in the fourth industrial revolution, yeah, it doesn't matter. What they say is only true when they say it, but when you acknowledge they said it, you're a conspiracy theorist. He did not specify exactly what he was referring to, but some companies such as Elon Musk's Neuralink are working on producing electronic devices that can be implanted into the brain. 
and used for communication with machines and other people, of course. On a more basic level, remember when Klaus Schwab said we'd be sitting there and we could use those communicate with the crowd? He just, this is exactly what we keep pointing out. It's pretty incredible how consistent this is. One more basic level, chips can be implanted into people's fingers and used to unlock things. The exact definition of 6G is currently unclear, and the world is only just getting to the grips of 5G. Right. They're just hoping they're they're pointing to 6G so you don't pay attention to what's being rolled out without due diligence right now. Elsewhere, US tech giants like Meta, you know, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, are working on new augmented reality headsets that could one day replace the smartphone. Right, because that's what 5G is really about, is the way that they're building these things out. In 2030, by 2030, Ludmark said he believes there will be a digital twin of everything, including you, that will require massive computational resources. In order to transmit all the com- com- uh, computer bits that the metaverse will require, exactly, networks will need to be at least 100 times or even 1,000 times faster than they are today. But you see how we let slope the metaverse? Why the metaverse? Why are we talking about the metaverse? Because that's the point. All this is taking place in the metaverse because it's not just some Facebook tools. That's some game. That's what they want you to think. That's your future. Now, finally, I'd place, I'm going to play a couple of clips here to, to, to wrap us out just over three hours, longer than I wanted. But they're all telling you this, guys. This, this right here is, uh, as it reads, uh, Regina Dugan, the former head of DARPA. We played this before, by the way who ran the Advanced Technologies and Project Laboratory at Google and now holds a similar position at Meta, wants people to swallow identification microchips. Well, that argument is they're available and they should be used. Here's that conversation. So I take a vitamin every morning. What if I could take vitamin authentication? What? Vitamin authentication. Look, I have one right here. Well, here, I'll let you hold it. Mm. Would you like to hold it? I'll hold it. Okay. (laughs) So... This, you guys see it? This pill has a small chip inside of it with a switch. It also has what amounts to an inside-out potato battery. When Which you one? swallow it, the acids in your stomach serve as the electrolyte. That's what they do. And they power it up, and the switch goes on and off. And it creates an 18-bit ECG-like signal in your body, and essentially your entire body becomes your authentication token. Right, so your yeah, your, your is... body becomes the computer, right? Yeah, that's not alarming at all, right? Now, what what about whether these are already being used? What about without your knowledge? Oh, no, now we're in conspiracy theory land. Not like that's never happened before, right? It's not like double negative that gets tricky. <laughs> the point is, it's obvious your government has done this before without your knowledge in countless ways. But when you come to it in a head today and say, could it be done without your knowledge? Oh, you're crazy, because that's the pushback. That's the organized and engineered pushback to obviously logical questions when they've done things like this before. But let's just say it hasn't been used already. The argument is, well, of course, of course, this is about making sure people that are sick do what they're supposed to. But then does that apply to people like you who aren't taking the injection? Couldn't it? Yes, obviously. Or just the idea that it could be used in forceful ways they don't acknowledge in the discussion today. They just love to shout people down for asking logical questions about things that have happened before. It's true. Okay? Okay. Yes, this is true. Essentially, your entire body becomes your authentication token. Yes, this is true. Okay? Okay, but... Okay, so wait. So it's, uh, it's really true. So what this means is that that becomes my first superpower. I really want this superpower. 
It means that my arms are like wires, my hands are like alligator clips when I touch my phone, my computer, my door, my car, I'm authenticated in. First superpower, like wow. I want that. So, so we're not shipping that right away. Yeah, no, we're not shipping that right but, away. But it sounds but is it, like- is it, This is FDA clear? So here's the thing, this, this is not science fiction. This pill is actually made by a company called Proteus and they've developed it for medical applications. That pill has been CE stamped and cleared by the FDA. You can take 30 of those per day for the rest of your life. And then what happens? Does your heart Nothing. beat change? Does your- We can just tell that you you've taken the pill. A tattoo that could- Wow, we can just tell that you've taken the pill? That's a little bit crazy. Or the idea that it's FDA approved? Like, because you see the, the ridiculous sidestep there is that it's not only about Efficate, you know, whether or not medically speaking, as a as a medication, there's any kind of side effect. What about the electromagnetic side effects? What about the side effects of what you're engaging with? What about the idea that there could be other problems that have to do with that conflict with your body? Uh, uh, you know, electro like the idea that your body has its own system in that regard, right? And that they may conflict. Like none of these are the, the FDA is not worried about those things. They're looking at whether or not this causes adverse events and so on. I mean, I mean, we're getting past the idea of a medication and we're becoming more of a cyborg kind of situation here. And that's the thing. When you implant some kind of microchip in your arm, we're not asking the FDA if, there's, if it's efficacious. We're on, a different, we're on a different path at that point, right? So it's kind of a ridiculous thing because they put it in a pill form. They argue the FDA, oh, safe and effective, right? <laughs> well, I don't know about that. They can tell whether or not you've taken it. I mean, God, guys, why in the world does anybody think this is what average people want? Be used for authentication. Absolutely crazy. Then we can acknowledge a video of Joe Biden pointing out that this is where we would be right at this time. Interesting. With equally consequential decisions in the 21st century, can a microscopic tag be implanted in a person's body to track his every movement? There's actual discussion about that. You will rule on that. Mark my words before your tenure is over. Can brain scans be used to determine whether a person is inclined toward criminality or violent behavior? You will rule on that. Oh, except he's completely wrong because they didn't rule on it. They just ignored it, <laughs> right? So his acknowledgement that it would happen is one thing because clearly he knew something. But the point is that he would rule on that. Well, that didn't happen, did it? They're not ruling right now whether they can do it. They're just acting like it's in your best interest and pushing it forward because of danger. Quite a bit different, isn't it? Okay, finally. Here's the example I was pointing out before. This has already been happening because of COVID-19. Now, we need to ask whether or not Israel and places that have already taken leaps and bounds in directions without their knowledge did something like this already in water supplies, or maybe two Palestinians, or God knows what else is happening. The point is Canada has already, and by the way, this is on my old account, You're All Dunces, that's been censored. I used the Wayback Machine to look at it. Canada secretly tracked 33 million phones during COVID-19 lockdown. And now that they're caught, what will they do? As they acknowledge, we'll just keep doing it for your safety. That happened. This was December 28, 2021. So what, what, was, what was moments ago fake news, which they called it fake news before they were caught, is now happening and continuing because safety. How many times has that happened in our history? No, we're not spying on you, the NSA says, but now we're doing it. And we've always been doing it because for your safety, though. Children. People that would buy that are ridiculous, but I don't believe that's even a... That's a fringe grouping of people that they present as the majority. I believe it. Now, here's Whitney Webb making a couple more points to wrap up here. Or one more point and one more from actually from Ben Swan. But this is an interesting, this is two points to make here. One, that this is what's being pushed on you right now, especially from the right, 
which needs to scare you and make sure we recognize the two-party paradigm of all of this. As Whitney Webb points out, if you buy this and think it's protecting you from surveillance, you're 100% a schmuck. Now, what's interesting is this is Seth Hedia pointing out that Eric Prince from Blackwater, or rather Academy, his latest venture is the unplugged phone. Yeah. How about, no, if you really want this, check out the above phone, right? You won't find it on Republican talking points because it's actually about keeping you safe. Above.phone. Check it out. Check it out for yourself. I have no interest in that. I just know the person making them and I believe in what he's doing. But here's making his unplugged phone, right? This, this fixture of the U.S. foreign policy agenda. And, and it's an $850 standalone mobile device, he says, with its own app. Sweet, just like the above phone, by the way, that's being developed in Israel because we know they're all about your freedom and safety, right? And will allow patriots to communicate securely. Yeah, right, because Israel is all about your security and safety, but only the patriots, though. Only the, that's the code word for Republicans today and the side of the, the, the illusion of the two-party paradigm because you're not a patriot if you're not a Republican, apparently, even though I'm a patriot. Anybody that believes in the Constitution is a patriot, even though I acknowledge the Republican side of the two-party paradigm is equally ridiculous to the left or the Democrat side. But here's the interesting part about this. Bannon's war room is pushing this. Get this new phone from this obvious CIA cutout individual. But here's what they post down here. Founder of BlackRock. (laughs) Great job, guys. Great job. No, it's the Blackwater, actually, Academy now. I just think that's ridiculous. And I can almost promise you the people that watch that are going to think there's some kind of overlap between him and BlackRock, which is going to confuse everybody. But maybe it's more insightful than we realize because BlackRock and Black Cube and all these Israeli connected entities are obviously connected to him. And there's much more going on here. But my point, obviously, guys, is this is something that is a partisan thing. And we need to recognize that this is not about that. If you are buying into one side of the paradigm and we think one side of the government's going to keep you safe from the other, you're in kindergarten Santa Claus land, guys. It's gone. That's not what's happening. Now, I guess that argument's not going to win anybody over, but hopefully the data from today will And the bottom line is it's leading into some pretty alarming directions that we're going to talk about soon, Whitney and I. Ben Swan covering this in regard to a Google engineer that's been placed on leave after he claims that he's discovered an an AI sentient bot on their chats, on, on our Google servers. Now, the question is whether that's real. Did he? And is that why he was put on leave? Or is this all an, ed- an effort to pretend they found the sentient AI in order to argue that that's justifiable for arguing that, you know, they, we'll get into that with Whitney. I don't want to kind of give away her, her argument. I'll, I'll finish what I was saying since this is what her the final point was. You know, is this actually what happened or is this a way to set up a situation where they can then go forward by arguing, well, since the artificial intelligence, which is better than us, knows better. They can decide things that are, you know, sort of immoral, right? Where we have to bomb all these people for your safety. And then they go, well, that's, isn't that a violation of rights? It's like, well, the AI said so, right? Don't they know better? They're kind of the future. We should ask the question whether this did happen or whether it's an illusion, a psyop to argue, to pretend that they found it already when they didn't. Interesting. And last clip, to add to that exact point, here is the former CEO of Google telling you that that is what's coming that artificial intelligence will decide your future very soon. The important point is humans are not mathematically as precise as we wish that we are. And indeed, human intuition is off. Sorry, guys. I accidentally hit the wrong button. Let me start that over. And so it is humans are not mathematically as precise as we wish that we are. And indeed, human intuition is often wrong. And so... 
one of the concerns that we have, which we state in the book, is that eventually there will be knowledge systems that will govern society, which will be perfectly rational. And oh, so so there will be AI systems that will govern society that will be rational, like better better than you is the obvious implication. Because they're so rational, they will not be understandable by the average human because they can't explain themselves. Okay, and so there's Whitney's point, right? So then they get to go, well, be, they're better than you, right? It was the right move to do, even though you think it looks bad. Like we murdered all those people over there because we wanted their resources. But no, the AI said it was the right move. It was the moral thing to do. You don't understand it, though. It's just beyond your understanding. Now, of course, that can be see, sound ridiculous to some people. It's despite the fact that that's exactly what's been abused, you know, whatever, the new weapon, the new idea, the new technology, all through history has been abused in the same way. But, you know, today can't happen. And Dr. Kissinger points out that in history, one of two things happens in that case. Either you have a revolution in, in the form of guns against the, the man, if you will, or you have a new religion. And we speculate that one of those two will occur as a result of these extremely large gains in perception from non, non-animate non uh, intelligences. So, so what's interesting, though, is what they just highlighted is religion and revolution are just the tools of, of regime change and manipulation. Not to say that there's not genuine revolution or genuine religion, just that we know historically religion has been a central player in abusing people, manipulating people from a position of power, as well as the fact that we can talk about the, rele- the regime change, the, the color revolutions. I mean, this is exactly the point. That's why Kissinger says that, because they have been the string pullers over the years using those tools to drive their way action the way they wanted to. So the, the thought experiment is that instead of Dr. Fauci, we have an all-knowing do- uh, computer, which basically... Instead of Dr. Fauci? What an incredibly ridiculous implication that current, he's the current iteration of that. <laughs> but instead of him, we'll have something better. My God, talk about scientism yeah, pater- or, or paternalism. Basically pronounces important things for health and it can't explain itself. So we've seen this scenario you're describing in movies a few times where the hero is sacrificed uh, because of the good of society. And so you can imagine looking at the way Google, uh, sorry, uh, DeepMind played both uh, Go as well as chess, that strategies that are seen as immoral might ultimately deliver victory. Um, We also say in the book, just to take on your point, that it's possible that AI at some level will see realities that humans can't see. The fact that AI could discover moves that humans had not discovered in 2,500 years in a well-established game indicates that it may be, it may just be smarter, but it may also see things that humans will never understand. And that's, again, a speculation. Wow. So the bottom line is, you know, it may do things that may per- you may in your little pea brain perceive as immoral, but no, 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 it's for the better good because they're better than you, smarter than you. Didn't you know? Fauci said the same, so just shut up about it. Yeah, like you know, like bombing countries and invading and stealing resources. You know, it's immoral, but it's for freedom, though. Is that not exactly what's happening today? I mean, it's literally what's happening. You can argue they believe they're doing it for freedom, but they're still killing people. They're still starving Yemen. They're still occupying Palestine, but it's for good reasons, though. So just as we continue to point out, especially if they're pretending to find a singularity, it's only as good as the data that's put into it in regard to algorithms and whatever else, right? So if they're pumping in garbage information, it's going to pump out garbage results. And that's the idea. So if they're pumping in the idea that immoral things are, you know, power equals, you know, might equals right and so on, 
we might end up seeing a argument that it's the right thing to do based on how that's being perceived. And maybe that's not sentient. Maybe that's just what they say it's saying. Who ultimately knows? This becomes the new religion itself, right? The AI said so. You're not allowed to challenge that. This is crazy alarming. Now, as always, three and a half hours, there's so much, and there's so many important things in the show that I wish could just get out there, you know, really reach people. But I'm seemingly incapable of not talking about important things because every moment I put something aside, tomorrow there's a no a waterfall of new things I want to talk about. And so they tend to get pushed to the side. So I'm doing my best to keep these things flowing for you. And I'm doing my best to keep a show going as often as possible because this information needs to continue. As always, guys, we can't exist without your support. And we've had, we've had an amazing show of support over the last couple of days, but it's important that we continue to share the information and get this out there because this platform doesn't exist without you. I love you all, as always. Question everything. Come to your own conclusions. Stay vigilant. What the experts are wrong. What if quarantining the healthy doesn't actually save lives? What if wearing a mask in public is not effective? If you do not have a mask, you cannot ride public transportation, sir. My name is Dr. Jeff Barkey, and I'm here representing thousands of physicians across the country whose voices are being silenced because we don't agree with the mainstream media and the experts who are telling us what to do. Everything I've seen in the last nine days, all the things that just don't make sense, the patients I'm seeing in front of me, the lungs I'm trying to improve, have led me to believe that COVID-19 is not this disease and that we are operating under a medical paradigm that is untrue. Never in the history of this great republic have we quarantined the healthy. Never in the history of this great republic have we told churchgoers that it's illegal for you to exercise your First Amendment right to freedom of religion. Never in the history of this country have we been told that you can't go to church because it's not essential, but you can go get an abortion because that's essential. Never before in our country have we let criminals out of jail, but we've told you you can't exercise your Second Amendment right and protect yourself by purchasing a firearm. When liquor stores are deemed essential, but your businesses are deemed non-essential, there's something wrong going on. We cut off people's utilities this week and made them pay what could have been their last check to us to turn their lights on in a global health pandemic. But you don't care about that. You didn't want to meet. This booklet, the Declaration of Independence and our U.S. Constitution, was never designed to restrain the people. It was designed to restrain the government. We're realizing that the fatality rate of this virus is in the ballpark of a bad seasonal influenza. Do not let your voices be silenced.
eventually that this government-imposed cure is going to be worse than the virus itself. But what's happening now is unemployment reaches 20 to 30 million people is those folks are now becoming dependent on the government. And what government dependency causes is a larger, more tyrannical government. We the people want to put our government back in its place. We want a small representative government, not a large tyrannical government. I'm here representing thousands of physicians around the country whose voices must be heard. We've never seen where we quarantine the healthy, where you take those without disease and without symptoms and lock them in your home. So you guys are asking me to leave the store for not wearing a mask when I have a medical condition, even though yours is pulled under your nose. A note that says I don't have to bring a note, and yours isn't even on. Just do whatever you want to do. It's America, right? Listen, I cannot wear a mask. Get out. Do not let your voices be silenced.